Welcome to Unbooking the Territories. We continue our journey through the highest and lowest TV rated episodes for the Monday Night Wars for each creative period. This week sees Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara's highest rated episode. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Vince Russo and I am the Antichrist of professional wrestling. I wear this black band because if we do not stop Russo, he will kill professional wrestling for every one of you. Unless, unless your idea of a good time is having a 320 pound Samoan in the thong sitting on your face. From day one that I've been in WCW, I've done nothing, nothing but deal with the bullshit of the politics behind that curtain. I want everybody in here to know just who Vince Russo is. Vince Russo is a magazine writer. Vince Russo is nothing more than a man that's still green behind the ears, wet behind the ears, and has no business standing in this ring. You disrespect the boys, the wrestlers, Truth be known, Vince, you hate this business because you've never, ever had the balls to be a wrestler. I made a promise that I would never go back on television. But every time I leave, they pull me back in. So how are you this week, Dan? Struggling, struggling to maintain my composure because you managed to uh, to break the guest with an off air with an off air joke, and just seeing seeing the guest laugh is absolutely sending me because apparently I can't see somebody laugh and not just nearly double over chuckling myself. Um, how are you, mate? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I had a uh, big delivery from Brew York come today, so very excited. I saw you sent a picture. You got your hands on the uh, on some of the freaky franchise series in the. Uh, the new Star Wars themed beers. Yeah, you'd had it, and the Ogdens had had it, so, you know, peer group pressure. <laughs> oh, you feel left out, mate. Yeah, that were it, that were it. I kept looking at the website and seeing it go down. It wasn't going down too fast. There was no danger I was going to miss it, but um, they did a little, <laughs> little counter. I think I, I was like the 180 left or something when I got it, so it, it might all be gone by the time this episode goes out. It might be, but I've had mine, so bollocks. Good stuff. So this week we've got a guest returning to the show, and it's the first one we haven't had in kind of one of those back-to-back tapings like they used to have uh, in Raw, where they were just recording episode after episode. It's the guru of Mattitude himself, Matt, who's uh, an excellent Twitch streamer. So check him out there, Matt. How are you today? Chair just broke. <laughs> just nearly fell over and shit myself. I'm fine. I, I am fine. I've had. Well, oh, I've had a day. I've had a day. The last 48 hours, I've been doing renovations in the garden. And today, today's renovations led to me inadvertently blocking the manhole in my back garden, which led to me laid face first in pissing down weather with my elbow deep in a manhole trying to unclog what I'd just done. So that's where I am. So yeah, thanks for asking, Rob. Thank you. I do like to think that your chair broke out of the sheer shock at somebody calling you a decent Twitch streamer. Uh, it was the exact moment. <laughs> 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 it's good to have you back on, mate. I'm surprised I've been invited, but thank you for having me. 
Well, you weren't a total cunt first time round, so you know. <laughs> I'll up my game then, shall I? If you want. Well, you, you, you need to, because this is the highest rated episode of the Monday Night Wars. Oh, God, yeah. Speaking of, by the way, I'm for, it's fortuitous I am here, because Mr. Occasionally Watches the Wrong Episode of Raw over there became Mr. Gave Me the Wrong Fucking Date three weeks ago. He texts me saying, um, oh, yeah, we're doing it on the 23rd of May. Are you up for that? And then this week on Tuesday, I get, are you still in for this Friday? What the fuck is Friday? Didn't have a clue. So thanks, Dan. <laughs> you know we record on Fridays. I was just testing you. Yeah, thanks. I am in no way numerically in uh, numerically inept. <laughs> it's like a wrestling school, this, isn't it? You know, we just keep hazing you to see if you're going to give up and leave. Or, you know, if you can... <laughs> Are you talking to me or Matt? <laughs> oh, there's, a, there's a solid chance I'll give up and leave most days, to be totally honest. Just going to say, Dan, just go in the corner and do a thousand squats. You know? I'd probably poo myself on the third one. I was going to say I'd pay to watch that until you said that. Just the audio then, just... <laughs> <laughs> and there's Dan's OnlyFans for the next 12 months. You like watching a lava lamp. <laughs> Why are we here? What are we doing? Uh, apparently it's a wrestling podcast. <laughs> is it? All right, come on, let's, let's do that. Well, well, it is, but maybe this conversation is a little bit alcohol-fueled, so uh, what's everyone drinking? Matt? Yeah. I got a BrewDog order today on BrewDog Now. It, it's the app, and it's, it's genuinely amazing. I ordered this about half past seven, or sorry, about half past six. It arrived at 20 to eight. But um, the first thing I'm cracking into from it is uh, called Paradox. It's a 13% imperial stout. It's vanilla and milk stout, and it does not taste like a 13% beverage. It's really nice, actually. It's got, it's kind of got a, a, a caffeine-y sort of taste to it, but not overpowering. It's very good. Fair enough. What are you want, Rob? Well, at the moment, I'm literally just finishing off a beer called Old Farts, and that's from a Cottage Delight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a, a dark ruby ale. Got a picture of uh, a couple of old farts on the uh, the bottle, not the kind that uh, comes out of Dan's posterior. Uh, and then, because it's a Vince Russo show, I'm going to go on to the Seven Brothers Juicy Pale Ale, six percent pale ale. And then I've got a Harbury Brew Toffee Oatmeal Stout. That was in no way just me and Matt giggling like kids because you had a beer with the word farts in the names, in the name. <laughs> From old cottages or something like that. <laughs> it's it's cottagers' delight, which is. Probably- <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing I'm doing countryside cottage pumps. Oh, this is going to be good. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm taking a trip down south with my uh, with my first beer. Going back to New, uh, new Bristol Brewery. With their six point five percent chocolate macaroon stout, it's very bloody nice. Then I've got going back to the old faithful brew York with the nougat, a friend in me, which is a chocolate and nougat pastry stout, six point six percent. And then the big finish is Laguna Sunrise from Turning Point, which is a salted caramel glazed donut stout, and it's a big un ten percent. I've had that. I'd had a bit of a day at work. And came home and thought I needed a beer, right? So I, d- I drank the first beer and it was like a 7% um, IPA, which is fine. But it was also an IPA, so it went down very quickly. So I thought, well, I need another beer. So I drank that one and then read the can after I finished it <laughs> and realised <laughs> what I'd done. <laughs> it tastes a bit like Bailey's. You did a whoopsie. Yeah, a big whoopsie, yeah. I didn't feel great the next day, but yeah, there we are. <laughs> Good luck with the 13% of them. 
Yeah, it's like beer fest all over again. It'll take me two hours to get home and I'll take a piss in a bush somewhere that isn't in your name house. <laughs> but that's a problem for future, Matt. It's not a problem for present, Matt, is it? That's if probably it... a problem for three hours from now, Matt, to be fair, when Alex just kicks me the fuck out. <laughs> nah, <you've> had... <laughs> <laughs> so now it's time for listeners to sit back and relax and be the virtual Nia Jax and Shane Baszler and we'll be the virtual Reginald and recommend a beer that they should drink while they're watching this episode of Monday Night Raw. So have you got a recommendation, Matt? I just drunk a punk IPA, to be completely honest, because uh, I had 12 of them to get through yesterday. So I just drunk a punk IPA, which is... It, everyone's had it at this point. It's just a nice IPA. Just drink that. Fair enough. I, I do appreciate that before we started recording, you were saying that Brewdog were the evil empire that was silent and quietly taking over the yeah, world. Yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't know if I should do a promo on this, right? <laughs> You've started me now. Right, people who drink Brewdog and pretend they're the independent brewery, stop it. They're fucking not anymore. If you want to support an independent brewery, go to somewhere like Turning Point or something like that. Brewdog, great beers, not an independent brewery. Stop saying it is. Anyway, what are you drinking, Dan? Well, what did you drink during the show, Dan? <laughs> oh, Matt spends ages putting over Brewdog and their beers and then turns heel on them in a fraction of a second. Brewdog... The progress, the, the, the progress wrestling of breweries. <laughs> right, for this one, I didn't actually drink anything while I was watching this, but since this is the highest rated episode of either Raw or Nitro in the Monday Night Wars, I delved into my untapped and I decided to look at the beers that I've given the highest rating to. And I'd have to recommend Bianca range from Omnipolo. They have three types of uh, pancake lassi goes. Um, blackberry, raspberry, or blueberry, uh, or cherry, actually, there's four. And they're all absolute five-star beers. They're incredible. They're, they're, to be honest, I won't buy them again because they're expensive as shit. But just drink them. They taste amazing. As a one-off, they'll be absolutely game-changing. Yeah, the, the Omnipolos are brilliant. That day I was walking down the beer aisle in Morrison's and saw that they'd got some at a reasonable price. It was a, a happy, happy day. But yeah, they Rob actually messaged me. Uh, he video called me. He's never done that before, and he was in tears. Just sheer joy. Well, they're, they're normally about 14 quid each, aren't they? And they were on, like, the uh, two for six pound range. It was a fucking hell out of crowd and all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there'd been um, a mistake with the pricing, but I were happy. Uh, since the Union are on this show, I've gone for a beer from And Union Brewery. I've gone for their Friday IPA, which is 6.5%. I was hoping that they'd do a Monday IPA, but they literally just do, like, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So they need to get on it and start brewing more beer. But it's a decent beer. I gave it three out of five on Untapped. Lazy fucker's not working a full week. Oh. Shocking behaviour. I only work four days a week. and I still get my full time in as well. That's the thing. I do four days a week, and I still work full time. Almost like, you know, that is a possible thing. Just saying... Now, we don't get into politics on podcasts. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to. I've been drinking. I won't. <laughs> uh, if, if anyone wants to check out that 90s wrestling pod, because uh, James got very frustrated that Dan said he doesn't talk about politics on his own podcast and then starts talking about politics on James's. <laughs> <laughs> Just look at my Twitter. It's full of it. And now it's time for Best Beer of the Week. And Best Beer of the Week is Stone Cold Cream Oskin, the Chocolate Orange Edition, 
I talk rope brewing and it's not just because it's wrestling related it's because it tastes like a chocolate orange so best beer of the week there's cold stone cream austin the chocolate orange uh, version from top rope brewing it's a pale ale milkshake at uh, 4.6 percent she gave it a five on untapped and i gave it three because i'm miserable uh, you're, you're more in the right there rob i've had it it's it's nice it's drinkable it's it's nothing amazingly special but it gets extra points because wrestling related the Top Rope Brewery do a lot of wrestling. Are they the ones that tend to do the wrestling-related beers, by the way? Or is that just... Yeah, there's American Nightmare and Papa Mango. There's, there's like there's, there's Hall of Pano Chocolat, which is like a chocolate, like a Pano Chocolat stout or something. There's absolutely tons. They, uh, they sell them in, you know, um, Hopper Clock near my work, my. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they usually have a few in there. I might be worth something about them. Definitely is worth swinging by. Go to the clock. And also Trembling Madness. We'll get a sponsorship one day. Yeah, yeah, one day, but not off Brewdog, because fuck them. <laughs> if, if Brewdog are listening, I'm more than happy to recommend you for a sponsorship. He's lying, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the ratings, went through this last show. The Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara are in charge of created together for 68 episodes. They've got an average of 5.6 and that um, compares to Vince Russo on his own who had an average of 3.85 and compares with Chris Crest who's going to come in later with an average of 6.11 but it's probably fair to say that during this period there's a massive upward trend and then when Kresge comes in it's relatively flat slightly downwards. The last um, episode that we covered with these two writing together was the low and that was on the 6th of July 98 and this is the high on the 10th of May 99 with a high of 8.1 and as we say that's the highest rating of the entire Monday Night uh, Wars. It's the uh, highest rating in, in WWF history one would venture to say. Well for a weekly television program it is the Saturday night main event with Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan was um, uh. that, that 8.1 is 8.1% of the audience, so you're probably looking about 12 million-ish for, for that. But, Still uh, incredible numbers. Incredible numbers. And the thing about Hogan Andre, that wasn't part of a weekly show. That was a special event. Mm. So, you know, you'd argue that, you know, this is probably more of an achievement because it's not like a big show that you've kind of built up to. It was, but it was it was a peak in what was actually a bit of a mad period because I did some delving into the spreadsheet, Rob, that you put together. And in the last, I worked out in the last eighteen weeks before this episode, the lowest rating was five point five, and it had been six or over for a solid month, and it only went below six three times in the subsequent four months. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this was a, it was a second major wrestling boom, that wasn't it? The previous one was obviously. In, it, it spanned a much longer period, but you had your territory days, and then when Vince expanded out of New York, there was a boom then, because there was wrestling every night in America, and it was watched, and it was attended, and you had 10, 15, 20,000 fans at any given arena where a wrestling event would be on at any given time, and this was the second boom in the... Yeah, they weren't selling arenas out every single night or every single week, but the eyes on the product, there was, as you said, probably 12 million people watching just this one episode of a, a, a television taping not even a pay-per-view this is just a, a television taping and one of the reasons is it, it, it is unopposed in terms of wrestling 
Nitro's having the week off because it's um, the NBA playoffs. Uh, the New York Knicks are going to lose to the Miami Heat, uh, 73-83. Uh, again, we only oh, know no. that. Jam. Yeah, so sad times. This show came from the O Arena in Orlando, Florida. There was 12,313 people there. So not the biggest crowd we've seen, but certainly a decent crowd compared to some of the episodes that we've watched. It felt like a lot more. It really, at times, it felt like twice that or three times that at certain points in this show. It's really bizarre with arenas in terms of how the seats are set out and how big they look. Because I think there was like a couple of tiers on this event. So it looked like there was quite a lot of people. And I think the next episode we're going to cover Nitros at the MGM Arena in Las Vegas. That they're going to get a bigger crowd, but it's just like a ball, so it doesn't kind of look as big because there isn't another tier. Yeah, and I think as well at this point, WWE really knew how to work, the, and, and Nitro to be fair, that WWE and WCW really knew how to work the camera angles and to make them look as big as possible. It looks um, huge. Yeah, I mean that that MGM Arena. Funnily, funnily, you should say that I kind of I know what events look like in that arena because I've watched a lot of boxing. And you're right, it looks tiny. It does absolutely look tiny, but it holds, uh, it holds a massive, it does hold a massive amount of people. Yeah, I think off the top of my head, it's about 18,000. So, it, you know, it, it kind of doesn't look like that. But as you say, these days, uh, wrestling promotions are scared to pan that camera because it would show you where they've uh, hardened off all the seats. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But like I say, just you say with the tears, as soon as I saw the tears, I genuinely thought, this is huge. This arena is absolutely massive, but evidently it was just an average arena, but it just looked enormous. And like Dan said, it sounded, apart from one match on the card that I don't know if we're even going to talk about, they were hot for the whole show as well. Like they really came into every single match, bar one, and they really did get hot for the whole show. It was, it was a really good crowd. Yeah, yeah, the, the crowd are definitely awake for this one. So now it's time for us to go through our five notable moments from the show, be they good, bad, or something we just want to discuss. So, Matt, as you're the guest, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, I want to start with the positive thing, actually, um, which, as Dan will tell you, is strange for me. The not opening segment, because I'm sure Dan's going to want to talk about the opening segment, but I think it was the second one, was uh, the union in the ring. And then the ministry come out to the, to the stage and Shawn Michaels interrupts on the Titan Tron. It speaks volumes of that era of wrestling that Shawn Michaels booked eight matches at that point. And each one of them, you could genuinely say, that could be the main event. Like, that, that could end this show. And I just think, it, like, it, as we were saying during a little intermission there, wrestling fans these days seem to think wrestling's popular right now. And for all intents and purposes, it's, it's not. It's not what it used to be. Whereas on this show, you go back and watch that, every match got a pop. Everyone could have been in the main event of that show because everyone was over. The crowd was so into it. it just, it's, it's, it's something that I think the modern era is missing, is that you can swap people in and out of the main event, even if they're not involved in the main event angle, and it still feel like something that means something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and, and this is kind of a feature of Russo's booking, and it's something that's you know we may go on and discuss, well causing problems when he goes to WCW, that he puts a lot of effort into the mid-card, which, you know, potentially if you're a Ric Flair or a Hulk Hogan, you're really not going to appreciate. But it kind of really worked in WWF at this point. 
And the thing I loved about this promo is that it started with Shawn Michaels reading the newspaper and saying the weather in San Antonio, giving the ministry the appearance that he was in San Antonio. And then right at the end, it's the switch that is in the arena and the crowd just go nuts for it. Oh, it was amazing. However, if the Ministry were more eagle-eyed and actually put this in my notes, they would have noticed from the dodgy camera work the random people sat in the back of the arena in catering. <laughs> the, the camera shifts a little bit too far and, and kind of goes, oh, shit, and pulls it back to Michaels very quickly. But you see people just sat behind him having something to eat. Well, it, that that could have been anybody. It, it could have been, but... You know, if, if you're in your house doing a promo like that, you're not doing it against a green wall with people eating and catering behind you, are you? He could, he could have been at the uh, the Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy that he so subtly advertised later on in the show. That gave us Daniel Bryan, by the way. Fair. <laughs> uh, and the problem the ministry had was they were watching the TV like wrestlers. If they'd watched it like uh, anyone normal straight on, they'd have seen it. But that, that <laughs> a cute angle really caused them a problem. Speaking of the way they watch TV, did anyone else love that when Shane was talking to Sean, he wrenched his neck back to look at the screen and started shouting at the big screen like, yeah, this will make him get my point. I'm going to scream at the big telly. And he can't see me, but I'm going to scream anyway and do it face to face. But what we do um, during a football match, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm with you there on this. Uh, that It was going to be one of my points. So the, the faking out of the weather report was pretty cool. So you just you hear his voice before you see it. So you get that anticipation from the crowd who are going to go, wait, is that, is that, hey, Sean Michael, you know, you get the pop there. He just, he goes right through it. But the thing is, this was like, there were so many stipulations and so many matches booked, but it all made narrative sense, given what, given what they said Shane had done the week before. Like he makes the Lumberjack match for Root versus Bradshaw. You see that on paper, not knowing anything about the context, and you just assume it's a bullshit throwaway match. But it ties into what Shane had done to a match Shane had made the week before. Lumberjack match between two union members with corporate ministry at ringside. And it, it gave... The whole thing gave a point to the sort of crash TV style of things. It still made narrative sense. You're having all, these, all this mad shit going on because Sean, as the commissioner, just wanted to rip Shane's, like, rip Shane's booking up do his own thing and just cause some chaos. And like Rob said, that um, that switch at the end, when you had the three riot cops, you get the Briscoe, uh, the Patterson reveal, the Briscoe reveal, and then Sean in the, just Sean in the middle of it, the crowd go wild. And for some reason, he starts trying to shag the microphone. He just starts, but, uh, tapping, just starts tapping his dick with it. And at that point, Vince woke up. That's but, but, when Vince started smiling. <laughs> I, I thought the start of this whole segment was really good as well, because... Obviously, the union are really upset with the corporate ministry. And instead of, you know, challenging them to a match and then starting a match with collar and elbow tie-up sort of thing, they're waiting backstage with two by fours and mm. wanting to, you know, beat them up sort of thing. And they're there with the, the riot gear on and stuff. It, it's, it's more believable for someone that you hated than I'm going to challenge you to a wrestling match to see who the best wrestler is. Especially when they're outnumbered as well. They, they went, on, went on all night about having the two-by-fours as the equalisers. And, you know, they come out and I don't know. On the Crime in Sports, they reference Vince McMahon and the standing joke is that Vince in the early 90s just had an obsession with hillbillies and making people wear dungarees. And it kind of made me giggle because there was a lot of denim in the union. 
a lot of denim, and it just it just like Vince like, I know, I know what I know what working class people wear. They wear jeans, pal. We're all wearing jeans, pal. And no and, shirts. Yeah, jeans and no <laughs> shirts <laughs> and baby oil. <laughs> it, it is the elephant in the room that Vince McMahon is the antithesis of trade unionism. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, Rob, that Rob no thing. politics on this podcast. That is one thing about the union. <laughs> it was clearly just Vince's way of just going, yeah, fuck unions. Because we all know what Vince is like with unions. He, he doesn't like them. Every time someone brings them up, he, he cuts it at the knees and he stops it. He, and the music that we are the union, just, oh, that was awful. But it, two by fours, when you bring them up, I hate two by fours as weapons. Hate them. You ever tried swinging a two by four? Well, they, they look really uncomfortable to to hold, basically, yeah. don't they? They, yes. they always look re- like they're, they're really difficult for someone to swing. Um, swinging them, there's, that, there's resistance. That it's something that you can't really grip. Like, you're not good. Get a baseball bat. If you're going to smack someone in the head with a bit of wood, do it, do it with a baseball bat. In Vince's mind, once someone's joined a union, they're working at least part-time in a lumber mill. <laughs> <laughs> Keep that revenue up. We're all sort of united on this. Yes, yeah. it was. Uh, it was a. I was just going to bring up the Shawn Michaels part of it specifically, um, but one thing: I, uh, if we're going for the whole segment, the the heat that Shane got mm. with the the asshole chance at this point were usually reserved for Vince. Oh no, no! At this point, it was uh, Vince wasn't wearing a tie. Vince was a babyface. Yeah. Babyface Vince doesn't wear a tie. It was wearing jeans. Also, uh, going back to my uh, McMahon impression from before, Steve-O, that was just for you, mate. <laughs> I hope it. I hope it lives up to the uh, lives up to your high standards. I wonder how he's going to feel when he realises we spliced him into the last episode. <laughs> no, 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 no. That wasn't a we. That was a you, Rob. I turn up, drink, and talk shit. You do all the hard work. Mm, yeah, that, that goes back to you giving me the wrong date. You can tell who who runs. Edits, releases, does all the podcast work. All I do is convince people to come on. I am shit at actually telling them what needs to be done. Rob's got this full like copy paste message shit going on. I'm just like, I just message people like, yeah, this is what we do. And then three days later, I think, oh fuck, I forgot that bit. And then a week after that, I think, oh fuck, I forgot that bit. Hey, no, last time I was on, Dan did throw Rob under a bus actually, because he went, you do, you, you know what we're doing, don't you? you know the format? I'm like, oh, I've listened to a couple of podcasts. Yeah, I went, fuck's sake, Rob's not sent you the message. <laughs> <laughs> Straight under a bus. Shut up. So we're all, we're all agreeing on this one. So what's your next one, Dan? I want to talk about Cactus Jack versus Midian and Viscera. Because, again, it's another one. I saw it on paper and I thought, what is this bullshit going to be? Um, I'm still not entirely sure why Shawn Michaels made the match. I don't know whether he thought... Midian and Viscera would be a decent challenge for Cactus in in a hardcore match. Uh, but he just seemed to go, yeah, we're doing all this for the Union boys. And, oh, Mankind, well, I need you to be the other guy. And you can fight two massive monsters in your favourite uh, kind of match. But it ended up being, just for me, entertaining as all hell. Because I, I like hardcore wrestling. I like death matches. This wasn't a death match because, obviously, you know, it's on weekly TV. On a, on a major network. It was more hardcore than most of the stuff you see nowadays, obviously. I still don't know why Cactus decided on bringing basketballs to the ring. Granted, he, granted he got Midian in the nuts straight away with one, and then he started just smacking him with some sort of 
It was like a almost like a, a, a platter, like a platter tray thing. We're, we're the crowd back, were you we're up? Back Rar, we're back to Raw on the Xbox where they had that box <laughs> at ringside and you could just pick out useless weapons like sunglasses and foam fingers and, <laughs> yeah. and basketballs and baking trays. Yeah. But yeah, the, the the crowd were big into it. Cactus hit the hit a cannonball off the apron, which was nuts. Um Visser and Midian did the best to sort of go for Cactus and beat him down. There was there was a sickening chair shot right to the face at one point from Midian to Cactus, which at the time, obviously, you know, I was about ten years old watching this, and it was like at ten, it was like, oh wow, we hit him in the face with a chair. What the hell? That's insane. I look at it now and I think, I just it just makes you cringe. That's exactly um, the word I've written down. Cringe. Yeah, but you know, it it, it, it just felt like it was a one night only for Cactus. He beat down to to absolute units after you know after being beaten up himself, putting the trash can on Midian's head, and then asking a stagehand to throw him a chair and then whacking the trash can was just hysterical. Then uh, just the double the double DDT I think he hit at one point was great, and then he, he did the elbow to the floor, his classic elbow to the floor while he was holding the chair. It just it really it was a clusterfuck, but it was so entertaining. And then one of the highlights was right at the end when Cactus is trying to make his exit and some bloke just bungle fucks his way into the shot to collect the basketballs and the and the baking tray and all that and he's just kind of awkward like I'm just here doing my job, don't mind me, you keep watching him. And it was just it was a fuck up, but it just it just added to it for me. I can answer why the match happened if you want. Yeah, go for it. The week before Shane booked the Acolytes versus Mankind in a handicap hardcore match. Ah, oh, got you. I missed that bit. If so it was, that. it was. No, I don't think we did. No, it was kind of a. Um, well, this happened last week, but the acolytes are booked. So instead, mm. you can be this dude who's meant to be hardcore, and you can take on these two people. Fair enough. So I take it from the deafening silence. Neither of you agree. Well, <laughs> I wrote down a couple of notes actually. The, the the main one I wrote down was this match was kind of. It was just there. Mm. The point you made about chair shots, I literally wrote unprotected chair shots, especially to Mick Foley at this point. Make me really cringe. He took it to the side of the damn head and it hit him yeah. and you saw the way he went straight to the temple. But saying that, the match not being great, the fans really got into it. Like, how over was Foley that he's in this match against two dudes that one would eventually turn into a pajama-wearing a pajama dude and the other one would wear a fanny pack to the ring and nothing else. And yet the crowd were going mental for this match, and it was entirely because of Foley. It shows just how over Mick Foley was that that's how hot the fans got for what was essentially a throwaway match. It's a, it's a theme of the show, really, so far. Every, every Raw we've reviewed recently has had some sort of brilliance from Foley, be it in Mankind, you know, in, in the uh, the third part of the uh, the interview with JR, be it Dude Love just cutting some some excellent promos, and here it, it, this match shouldn't shouldn't work for me. You know, on paper it, it looks like complete bollocks, but he really made chicken salad out of chicken shit with it. Mm. And I, I think the bonus of this one, and I, and I did really like this match. It didn't make my top five, so um disagreeing with both of you even though you're coming from different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> um, I think that the, the beauty of this match was that, yeah, Mick Foley might have lost a handicap match to Visser and Midian, but it wasn't Mick Foley or Mankind that was going into the match. It was Cactus Jack. Mm. And 
that's like you know the the super sort of power up sort of thing and it kind of works in a way that maybe the fiend or whatever doesn't work these days in sort of the suspension of disbelief kind of way where yeah, you, you, where you, you see catches jack you know shit's going to go down yeah and it's going to be some sort of it's all he's an almost indestructible force yeah i I, th- I think that was that was the reason for it i mean the other thing that you've missed from this match is that at the start of it val venus cuts a promo when he's backstage with cole saying uh, he's got a bone to pick with Jeff Jarrett because he's been walking around the WWF thinking that Deborah is all up in his stuff. All the while, deep down in her gut, she wants the big Balboa. I just didn't so... want to give Val Venus any airtime on this show because he's no, a dickbag. Yeah, Val Venus is an awful <laughs> human being. <laughs> awful, awful. But, you know, it's kind of a recurring theme that there are lots of storylines going on. Mm. Lots of different threads. You know, and yeah, Val Venus is is awful and you want to ignore him. But even he had several irons in the fire. Mm. Yeah, he did. And it wasn't far off this point that they actually started pushing him as a heel. I think it's about November time they start pushing him against Mankind because of the rock and sock connection. Val Venus steals Rocco and that becomes a heel turn for him. And he gets a pay-per-view win over Mankind. And then he's working Smackdowns with Steve Austin and things like that. He genuinely did get a bit of a push towards the end of 99. So whatever he was doing, Vince obviously thought, well, it's working. This is over, pal. And pushed him quite hard. For, for It wasn't for long. It was only for like a month. But st- by the end of the year, he was the European champion. He beat Bulldog at the Armageddon pay-per-view. So. And I think, well, I think I'm pretty sure in, going into 2000, he was uh, Intercontinental champion as well, or at least in the picture, because... Wasn't um, fully loaded 2000, the year he had that infamous uh, cage match with uh, Rikishi? The Rikishi, Yeah, the splash mm. off the, top, off the yeah. top of the cage. I believe it was, but I'm, I've, I'm re-watching 2000 at the minute. I've not quite got out of January because of the Matt Helmsley era. It's di- it's, it was diabolical, but I'm, I'm tangenting. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so Cactus Jack versus Midian and Vissa isn't going on then because of Rob. Yeah, Rob. Well, Matt was the one that he didn't want to put it on. I mean, when did I do that? Oh, did, didn't did? Do you want to put this on, Matt? It's for, I mean, I I honestly, I thought the match. I think Foley's work is what makes it a, a thing. And again, I have to kind of go. I hate doing this because of when this will go out. But I have to go back to the podcast you guys put out this week. It's again, it's a Foley masterclass. He gets he, the crowd is in the palm of his hand, and and literally five minutes later is the Lumberjack match, and he comes out late dressed as Mankind. <laughs> and I just loved that. The rest of the union came out, and he was like, fuck off, I'm not ready. Right, do you know, okay, I, here's what's going to happen, right? I'm calling now. We're going to agree, we'll agree to stick a pin in Cactus Jack versus Viscera and Midian. You've brought up him coming out as Mankind during the Lumberjack match. What's going to happen is we're going to get to the end of the show, be struggling for something to fill out the fifth spot, and we're just <laughs> going to decide that Mick Foley deserves it because Mick Foley... As yeah, that, that's what normally happens, but but we can yeah. wait and see if it happens. <laughs> Spoiler it has, alert. It has just dawned on me, like, uh, Shawn Michaels, for me, is the best in-ring performer of all time, but it's just dawned on me, the more I think about Mick Foley, he has to be in that conversation. He's so under, he's so underappreciated, I think, in the he, sort of grand context of things. Absolutely the is. Like the, the whole feud with Triple H. Yeah, promo, phenomenal. 
like even going back to his later days when he had the match at one night stand with Terry Funk against Edge and um, oh God, who was Edge's partner in that match? I, I don't remember now, but he had a no. He was Edge's partner, wasn't he? Foley was Edge's partner. He was heel, and he had a promo in the middle of the ring, just a spotlight on him, and it was one of the best things you'll ever see. Mick Foley's a promo is phenomenal, and in the ring he doesn't barely miss a beat. Even going to his days as TNA champion when he decided it, when he was heel again, and he decided it, that he, for the good of the company and the good of the wrestling world, he was going to be the champion, but only defend the belt once a year. Yeah, Foley has to be in that conversation. We're delving into uh, Mick Foley Appreciation Society territory again. Not that that's a bad thing, <laughs> but I think Rob might quite like to make a point. No, I was just going to say we'll stick a pin in it, and at the end of the show we'll come back and see if uh, that is the decision. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I am going to put something in that's a negative, but I think we need to talk about it. And okay. that's Deborah versus Sable for the oh. WWF Women's Title, which is the first time we have seen the WWF Women's Title in all this time that we've been reviewing the show. And it's an evening gown match. So and I, I, I would love to sit here and say this is the worst women's match we've reviewed. And it is. But it's also the best because it's the only, you know, with all the episodes that we've reviewed, there's never been a women's match on it. And frankly, that's disgraceful. And and what happened in this match was disgraceful. Shawn Michaels and Jerry Lawler on commentary were dirty, pervy old men. It was difficult to watch. And I I would worry, I would worry about women who went to those shows and what they felt like going to those shows when you know you've got half the audience chanting poppies and stuff that that must have been an awful environment to to sit in imagine being an AJ Lee or a Victoria or someone like that who came in towards the back end of the noughties you you grew up watching that that's yeah. that that is your idea of women's wrestling and I mean, you say Sean was a dirty old man. He was worse than that. I mean, split it any way you want. His comments regarding Nicole Bass bordered on transphobic. Oh, I, I, I don't, I don't think it bordered no. on it. It just fully was. Yeah, it was. It was a product of its time, but it's aged horribly. It is sad to say that everything that everything that was said on this show would have either got a laugh or been regarded as acceptable or oh it's just 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 lads banter in it or some bullshit like that it would yeah. it's oh it's terrible it is so bad and this is the thing is we've on this show we have pointed out the excellent work that Sonny and Sable have both done throughout when they've been even just like you know maximizing seconds in some cases you know whether whether ran the the jealous boyfriend angle with Miro uh, with with Matt Merrow, not Miro. Uh, that's a completely different thing. <laughs> um, you know, or, or Sonny being on commentary and just being absolutely fantastic and just so quick witted, um, and far you know far more than just eye candy, as a lot of people think. You know, a lot of people think she was. This segment justifies everything wrong with the attitude here that that people think it. You know, that people think now. This was just fucking terrible. And, I mean, 
Sable wins the match by just as soon as the bell rings, ripping off Deborah's evening gown, uh, which is a sentence you never think you're going to say. Then Shawn Michaels awards Deborah the WWF Women's Championship because he says the woman who had her evening gown ripped off is the woman. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's sex cells and then there's just straight up perversion. Yeah, I mean, I mean that this was, and and the daft thing is, when Sean was announcing all those matches, before you knew it was going to be an evening gown match, and you know when I saw it on the, uh, you know segments at the bottom on the network as something coming up, I thought right, we're getting our first women's match, you know Deborah's in it, it's not going to be great, but at least it's mm. a thing, and then it turned into this. The, the, there is one, one good thing. I can mention about this whole debacle. And that was, up until this point, we haven't seen Sable work, work as a heel. We haven't seen her in any, you know, we haven't seen a promo as a heel. We haven't seen anything. She came out with a complete change in her body language, facial expression. She conveyed a massive, arrogant, fuck you attitude. Mean bitch. Without, without saying a word. Yeah. yeah. And... If, but at the same time, she was doing that while walking out for a match, pretty much bollock naked. Yeah. But that that it was just another example of how good Sable was that she could convey all of that just in the way she walked, her facial expressions, and wearing a pair of sunglasses and slightly changing her hair. And if the rumours are to be believed, I mean, Sable was on a skyrocket she was becoming the biggest thing in the company and apparently according to the rumors it was the undertaker who was in vince mcmahon's ear saying she's taking the spot of one of the boys it's not right that woman's in that position <sighs> it's stable uh, downgraded to be fair given takers recent comments about how guys in the back now are soft because they play video games yeah taker one of the best of all times best of all time but he came up in such a different era, you know, and he's going to stick to his guns and you can believe him saying something like that. Yeah. It was just, it was, thing. this is one of the the worst things that we've covered. In fact, my final, my final note on the, on the, on the segment was, is verbatim, that was some harsh shit. It was was even worse. It was even worse than the the Sable and Jacqueline promo that we covered, where they were having some slightly awkward but fairly decent back and forth, mostly at Mark Merrow's expense. But then they decide to they decide to settle the differences in a bikini contest. That was bad. But at least there were at least there were at least Merrow was the butt of the joke for most of it. This just was shite all around, and and just it's. It's the wrestling equivalent of that. You know when you burp and that bit of sick comes to the back of your mouth? Yeah. I mean, the, the only good thing I can kind of say about it is the women's championship's there. It's a thing that might possibly turn into something in the future. Mm-hmm. And you're setting that idea in the audience's mind that, you know, you're starting to put in the audience's mind that this is something of some import and something's going to happen with it. Nothing happened on this show, but at least it went from zero to something 
but the thing it went to in this transition stage was awful. I mean, I wrote, um, the, the only thing I wrote about this match was um, you, you become so grateful to see the way that women are treated in professional wrestling on the whole today. I mean, just to jump forward a little bit, though, the treatment of women doesn't get better as this show goes on. Did anyone watch China's promo and pay attention? Yeah. Can't like, remember off the top of my head. Literally, a couple of segments later, China does a promo and she starts it with, let me tell you something, Michael. Every 28 days, I become a real bitch or something like that. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you immediately go, who the hell, a man wrote a promo for her saying, talk about your menstrual cycle and why it makes you a bitch. Uh, mind-boggling. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, the, the, the thing I would say about this era is, this isn't like modern day raw. They were giving no. they were giving people bullet points, and they gave the wrestlers a lot of attitude uh, latitude to cut their own promos. So I don't think we can definitely say word for word that this was something that was written for her. It was pitched. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't good. On the flip side, when I heard there was going to be China versus Ken Shamrock, just just the idea of it, you think shit's about to go down. I was excited. I was excited to see that match. Shamrock did some swears. He yeah, he done said the fuck word. He done very audibly said the fuck word. <laughs> so yeah, sorry we we, uh, we we started to tangent there because I think this whole segment just made us all that uncomfortable. Uh, the um, treatment of women in general at that point in time made me feel ridiculously uncomfortable. So yeah. do we agree that as a as a negative, this deserves to go on one of the five. Oh yeah, about the show. I think oh, yeah. it has to because it is. I think I think me and you, Rob, we're, we're in agreement. This is the worst thing that we've ever covered. It was horrific. Yeah. Yeah, that was awful. Bring the mood back up, Matty. Oh, now you've said it like that. I was dillying over two things. I was even going to bring up something that I texted you guys earlier about that. I'll I'll either bring up on my next point, or one of you guys will bring up. I'm not sure which. So let's do something happy. The Stooges. Oh. Patterson and Briscoe, man. Number one, they walked out. I don't know if anyone caught the names they said, right? Yeah. But they, they were walking out and they said, Harley Race, the American Dream, Ray Stevens, Nick Bockwinkle, Bob Rose and Ric Flair. They're people that between them they've beaten. I didn't do proper research into this, but I found that Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes and Harley Race, between them had 21 NWA World title reigns. Fuck and you've got yeah. these two old men just bragging about... Yeah, I beat them. It's fine. <laughs> then they came out just having the best of times. I was grinning from ear to ear watching them just fucking dancing to Real American. They had one of the worst matches I've ever seen in my life that ended with one of the best finishes. Of just two old dudes making young men tap out. And then the pause. The face, the paws, the shirt coming off and just J.I. going, by God, don't do it! As Pat Patterson dis- The whole thing had me smiling. And yeah, it's probably because Patterson recently passed away. But, oh God. It- that, when you see two men like that who have literally given their entire lives to professional wrestling, you can't help but smile and respect the fact they are still doing it. And as a side note... Pat Patterson is a French Canadian, not a real American. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Pat Patterson's there in a, uh, he's got a t shirt on that says, First I See Champ Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> that was so good. The fictitious tournament of Rio de Janeiro. 
But yeah. then when he, when he when he pull when he tears the t-shirt off and starts, you know, do, doing the poses and he's got the dad bod sort of thing. JR on commentary said, and remember guys, he's single. Oh, oh. He's single, fellas. It's a, yeah, but but that's the thing because at this point, I mean, you know, we've seen how home, homophobic these crowds were and stuff, and obviously Pat Patterson was was out, but only out backstage sort of thing, certainly. You know, yeah. the, the crowd wouldn't know. And I think it was nice that even if people didn't get what JR was saying, that they were acknowledging his sexuality. I said to that, that's the way I took it. That's the way I took that comment as well. Because I think, uh, and I mentioned uh, mentioned this to Matt in the conversation, he was, he was just mentioned there before I rudely interrupted him. It's my gimmick. Nice. It did feel like a, sort of a friend just nicely putting it out there. It didn't feel malicious. It didn't feel... Horrible, um, which you know, given some of the signs we've seen on Raw and Nitro and, and all of that, was and various other things in the actual industry at the time, it was great. But this this whole match is just a joy. It's shit. It's it is a terrible wrestling match, but I don't care because it's so much fun. Yep. Well, uh, I, I, I I would argue, and you know, I, I come from from a very different angle. I would argue this is a great wrestling match. Because the crowd loved it, it brought joy. You know, you could have they, they could have had two some some wrestlers go in there and put on a five star technical classic that the crowd had no involvement with, that everyone was sat on their hands, you know, and they could have done all these fancy moves, but it wouldn't have mattered. And to me, that wouldn't be a great wrestling match because it'd be completely out of context. So this, what you're saying is this is this match was better than AEW. <laughs> this anything, and you know, I mean, you know, we, we point out the 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 flaws with AEW, and you know, I mean, I, I guess you wouldn't expect that kind of thing from Raw or whatever, but it's important to sort of see the rest, wrestling as this show, and in the context of this show and that moment, it was a brilliant match, and it was a loser leaves the WWF match, and we got rid of the Mean Street Posse, which is brilliant because they were. Sublime douchebags. I just heard Rob say we can rip into AEW, Dan. Are we, are, are we taking over the podcast? <laughs> um, the thing is, I only, I only dig at AEW and rip on it because I watch it every week. I watch the show and I just, I want it, I want it to be better. I want it to be everything they said it was going to be. They're in my notes twice this week and not for positive reasons. I mean, again, just, just like you, I'm a Huddersfield Town fan and. I have more criticisms about Huddersfield Town than anyone who doesn't support them because I, I know sort of all the flaws with them. And that's the same with AEW. The only reason I've got issues with them is because I watched the show and I wanted to improve. Hmm. I'll swing back to what we're talking about, actually, because um, I have a fun fact about the Mean Street Posse. Would you like to know it? Yes. So um, Pete Gasparino and Rodney, don't know his surname, were legitimate friends of Shane McMahon. That wasn't an angle. They went to the same high school. They played in the same football team together. They were legitimate friends. In 1992, Pete Gas actually wanted to learn to wrestle. Shane talked him out of it. Really? Shane told him not to do it, not to get into it. The reason they got into the WWF when they did is because McMahon needed someone for the X-Pac feud. You know, he needed a backup for the X-Pac feud and he wanted someone who looked like they came from money and he thought, right, I've got two friends. Fuck it. Why not? And that's how they got involved in WWF. They are legitimate childhood friends of Shane McMahon. 
So if you grow up with a rich guy, you can end up getting dick punched by a wrestling legend. I mean, you say grow up with a rich guy, but they went to the same school, dude. Pete Gass and Rodney were were both rich dudes. Yeah, yeah, but like billionaire rich. Pete Gass has turned into quite a... um, He he had a resurgence a few years ago, didn't he? He wrote a book. He wrote a book about his life in professional wrestling and what he's done after it and stuff like that. And From what I can gather, it's quite an interesting read, actually. His time in professional wrestling was it a novella, <laughs> dude? He was in WWE for like two years. To be fair, man, that's longer than a lot really? of people manage. Yeah, he was there. Oh, no. I thought people would uh, mistake it as fan fiction. He was there for until at least two thousand. I might be wrong, but he, it, uh, as in I might be off. As in it might be longer, but it was definitely at least two thousand. He was there because he was. Um, they went from McMahon's buddies. Then in the. Spoiling this, Matt, because we've got to cover these episodes, and as far as we believe, <laughs> the loser has left town. Oh, yeah, no, it's a new posse. It's a geek, ga- geek pass, um, Wadney, and then some other bloke turns up. But <laughs> they definitely left. <laughs> oh, can we just talk as well about... I'm um... never fucking coming back to this podcast, have I? <laughs> Probably not. Oh, um... shite. <laughs> Can we just talk about Pat Patterson trying to uh, crotch uh, Rodney on the top rope and just how badly that went? <laughs> oh, and the suplex before it. Did you see poor fucking Briscoe's legs just cross as he went for the suplex and he sort of fell on his ass. The whole thing was great. But we got to see the riot helmet used as a weapon. Yep. I love this so much. I've always, I loved this the first time I watched it. I remember vividly my routine. My routine used to be me and my brother Friday night, Monday night Raw. For some reason, I think I've said it before, just biggest sandwiches we could possibly make, sit there, snacks, 10 o'clock, the lot. And I remember watching this and just laughing like hell and loving it. And it's exactly the same 21 years later, 22 years later. It really is. And I mean, we forget, looking at matches like this, you forget how good... Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe were like to talk seriously about them for a second. There's a reason Patterson was the first Intercontinental Champion. I mean, his um his hardcore match with Sergeant Slaughter. If you've not watched it, go look for it. For, for the time, it's brutal. It really is brutal. And Jack and Jerry Briscoe don't really need talking about. We both know. We all know how good they were. Like they were phenomenal wrestlers in their day. So for them to keep getting you know, pushed ish in an audience in the late 90s and still be over. Speaks volumes of how good they were and how much they both loved wrestling. And Jerry Briscoe was still pretty spry at this point. Because mm, he, yeah. he, was, he was 53 and Patterson was 58. And this, this was an era where not a lot of guys wrestled into the 50s. Nowadays, you have like, just off the top of my head, you have um, Two Cold Scorpio still popping off um, backflip leg drops in his, into his 50s. You know, Jericho still featuring on Dynamite at fifty and things like that. But Briscoe was still, and he's got a lot of miles under his belt from the territory days, a lot yeah. of miles. But he was still, even at the end, he was fired up. He was, he was jumping up on the ropes and and just absolutely loving it. Like it was, it felt like it felt like he knew that was the last time he'd feature in a, in a meaningful way in the ring. Them two hugging at the end, just. Yeah. Yeah, it was so, so good. I mean, I mean, this this goes back to that Larry Zbysko line in commentary on that Nitro we covered, Dan, where he said um, that when you have to leave the ring, every time that you step back in the ring is like you know a, a dagger because you know you can't perform at the same level you did. 
Whereas yeah. and Patterson know that they've still got at least something in the tank. You know, they have the capacity to entertain and just do it one more time. You know, they, they know they haven't crossed that that line that Tabisco was talking about. I think uh, what Dan said there, what three words, one more time. And I think that's what Patterson and Briscoe lived by every time they got in the ring. And it shows. They, for, for all they knew, this was one more time. Just, you know, this that every match could legitimately have been the last time Vince booked them to be in a match. Yeah. and, and But just, just knowing the joy that they hadn't crossed that line yet, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and I've said it before, the only shame is that if this had happened a year earlier, we'd have had uh, René Goulet uh, involved in the uh, Stooges. <laughs> the deceased René Goulet. All right, don't rub that in. We, I know you haven't heard, you, you haven't heard the, uh, the recording yet, but I think I covered that adequately last week. Yeah, after I told you. <laughs> and, then you were, and you were rightly credited for it. Oh, I can imagine how I got credited by you. I credited you on Twitter. Oh, yeah, on Twitter? Imagine how it came across on a podcast. No, I'm pretty sure I was. I'm pretty sure I was rightly respectful. I was you, talking about Rene Goulet. You probably called me a cunt. I don't think I did. <laughs> he would never do that. <laughs> he frequently does. Fuck you, you cunt. <laughs> <laughs> We've reached the cunt quarter for this episode. <laughs> Considering Stop I saying cunt. So we all agreed that Patterson and Briscoe rightly go on to the top five. Yes. We're allowed three fucks, one cunt, and that's it for the <laughs> half an hour. But yes, Rob, we're agreed, yes. Let's talk about beaver cleavage. That's on my list. <laughs> yeah, I knew it would be, yeah, because I remember you talking about these about these vignettes. Mm-hmm. It's a black and white black and white sort of fifties or sixties sitcom style vignette. There's an adult man dressed like a child in uh, in short trousers and braces and a, like a school jacket, and I think he's got some sort of shitty little cap on. He scraped his knee trying to go as high as he can on the swings, and it just didn't work out. And uh, his mum's there cleaning the uh, cleaning the wound, saying, saying, let mother take care of this split knee. We can't have a split beaver running around now, can we? And Beaver Cleavage looks at the camera and says, when it comes to working on knees, my mum is the expert. And... Raises his eyebrows multiple times in a way that would make Millhouse out of The Simpsons say, what the fuck are you doing, dude? And it was just in the middle of this program, he was looking at it and going, okay, so we've reached, we've reached the uh, kind of incestuous innuendo part of the uh, part of the show. That's all a bit weird. It was just, there was a real, dis- I've not said this in a while, but there was a real sort of disparity in tone of the whole thing. One of the, that's one of the headbangers. It oh, is. Which it's headbanger. Headbanger. Oh, thanks, Dan. I thought Rob would know. I assumed Rob would know. I didn't know you. I didn't think you would. I said that without moving my lips. <laughs> Imagine how mad you are if you're Marsh. Because Thrasher was injured. That's why they broke up, obviously. Thrasher went down injured. And now you're Marsh, and they go, right, we've got an idea for you. Right? <laughs> and this is what they pitch. And then after this gets dropped, it be- did he become Chaz? But yeah, imagine how magic... Because, I mean, their gimmick on the indies, they played a team called the Spiders. One was called Spider Number 1, one was called Spider Number 2. Little known fact, the headbanger gimmick came from Jim Cornette. He pitched it to them, he mm-hmm. rung them up and he said, I've got a job for you, but I'm going to need you to wear skirts and fake bras. And they thought it was a joke. 
they didn't think it was a real thing. But then obviously, yeah, Thrasher going down injured really fucked Marsh over. They, they should have just taken him off TV. It would have genuinely been better than this. Vince McMahon had been itching for a long time to do an incest storyline. Yeah. Uh, Summoning his daughter. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I don't know that this was a Vince McMahon idea, but it feels like it might have been given uh, his harsh on for uh, doing the storyline. Um, imagine his Pornhub history. Jesus. Just on the headbangers, um, they, I listened to an interview that they did ages ago. And they said that whenever they got like luchadors in from AAA or whatever, they would be tasked with driving them from show to show, sort of thing. And obviously, they didn't speak any Spanish, and a lot of the luchadors didn't speak any English. And there was one set of um, tapings that they went on, and they just assumed the luchadors were feeding themselves. <laughs> <laughs> They found them all like huddled around a vending machine trying to break into it because they hadn't eaten. They need to go on the road of Sting and the uh, Road Warriors though, and they were having uh, food wars on the, yeah. on the highway. <laughs> Throwing watermelons. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so the headbangers uh, have no appreciation when uh, other people want to eat is a take-home message. <laughs> oh, when other people speak a slightly different language. Fuck learning all our Mexican talk. Get your own food. Bless him. I, yeah. uh, as far as Beaver Cleavage goes, uh, fuck him. Fuck yeah, the exactly. apple. Fuck the gimmick. They gave up on it so quick and didn't make it better. Yeah, it, it has to. Uh, it has to go on the top five because it, it's awful. I mean, it, it did, I didn't put it on my top five, but I can't argue with it because it, it was such a misstep. They pushed it yeah. so hard as well. And I think this is the first time if my very faulty, slightly alcohol-pickled memory recalls that this is the first time we've had two negatives on uh, on a top five. Yeah, it, it, it is. I, I guess what I'd say about this show is, though, that it felt, it felt like a cross between kind of a pay-per-view and a go-home show. They had so mm. much going with it. They had those eight matches that Shawn Michaels announced, and... I guess we did see this in WCW as well when they hit their high, that there was a kind of element of almost hubris on the show, that they knew they were the shit and they could kind of, thought they could kind of get away with a lot of stuff and just rely on... Possibly. Them. I mean, I, I went sort of... I'll, I'll get to it in my, in my review of the show, um, but you, it's a point that's just occurred to me. Is it that or is it the fact that this show... I, I found this show overall just really entertaining. But I think it's such that everything, or the vast majority, was at sort of a certain level of of enjoyable and watchable. That, but the the bad bits were really, really fucking bad. Mm. It was it was a show of ex, it was almost a show of extremes. It's like it's the highest rated, but the worst parts of this show are really, really awful. Yeah, and and I guess to a certain extent, maybe they were in this environment of just. There was no boundaries. They could try whatever they wanted. You know, they, they weren't limited by traditional wrestling, uh, as Vincent said in that here for the Common Show promo. You know, uh, and and maybe when you're in that environment, sometimes you cross the line into the awful and the absurd. Absolutely, I mean, it, it's worrying that Vince will just. I said this last time I was on. 
Vince Russo will throw shit in the wall and see what sticks, and and the filter is what makes it stick. This was Vince McMahon seeing what would stick, and it went full circle. And a name that I bet no one brings up anymore. It really ruined Paul Burchill's career in WWE. The, the, the incestuous angle. Abs- Paul Burchill. I saw his debut on FWA and thought this man is a machine. He's a beast. Then he kept with WWE and had his sister, and there was that angle. And at no point can the fans get invested in that. It is bizarre with gimmicks, though, isn't it? You know. There's some gimmicks that on paper should never work. Like The Undertaker, we've said it again and again, should never, ever have worked, should never, ever have got over, but yet it managed to get over. And I I would like to think that if a wrestler has everything else in place, that kind of one bad storyline or gimmick wouldn't kill them. Mm. So we've all agreed that Beaver Cleavage is on our top five. Which is the first time that sentence has ever been said about Beaver Cleavage, by the way. This is the beauty of having a top five that's positive and negative. Mm. Not just looking for the best. We're trying, to, we're trying to be balanced. So it's over to me for my next one. And just because I don't think either of you two are going to talk about it, and it has to be talked about because when there's anything on a poll, it needs mentioning. No. I am going to go for the nightstick on a pole match, Test versus the Big Boss Man. We're going to um, disagree about Vince Russo again. <laughs> Vince Russo gets a, a hard ride for this one because everyone associates him with on a pole matches because he, he kind of brought them to Raw and Nitro. Every week. In, in terms, no, I think he only booked 12 in his entire career. Without consecutive weeks. <laughs> No, they weren't. If you look at the person that booked the most on a pole matches, it's probably Jerry Lawler or Bill Dundee. I mean, they were literally every week in Memphis. Lawler doesn't surprise me. Lawler had a formula that he would stick to ardently and would not divert because it made him money. So that doesn't surprise me with Lawler, to be fair. But the thing I love about on a pole matches is there's a reason for them to exist. There's something on a poll that, generally speaking, there's a reason that the two people want to get to. And there'd been this incident the previous week where Bossman had attacked Test with the nightstick. So you're putting the nightstick on a pole because, you know, you're trying to take it out of Bossman's reach and he's going to have to try and get to it. But Test has got that equal opportunity to try and get to it. And it's... Again, we're getting back to sort of these matches that just happen for matches' sake. You know, if if you look at things on, you know, we've said it on Dark, Dark Elevation, that kind of thing, you're just getting standard wrestling matches with no storyline behind them, no reason for them to happen other than just to churn through wrestling. And they're not the only ones that are guilty of it. We've, we've slammed NXT UK for that as well. But at least you've got a reason for this to happen. And the other beauty of on a pole match is you get loads of segments within this match where, you know, Test will go for the nightstick and then Bossman will pull him away. Bossman will go for the nightstick and um, Test will, will pull him away. I thought the crowd was really invested in this. I've written five times during this match, massive pop, various, various segments. You know, the crowd were really into it uh, as they were into most of this show and then you get uh, test gets the nightstick but boss man has an extendable baton 
that he then goes and hits uh, Test with uh, behind the referee's back. And it reminded me of that Simpsons uh, sketch where Bart goes on the ride with the police and uh, he says, can I have a look at your club? And uh, the policeman goes, it's called a baton, son. He says, what do you do with it? We club people with it. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll, I'll give you the finish. Um, I, the finish was, was, was pretty bloody good because boss man was perfectly positioned. The camera was perfectly positioned. Everything, every element of that was in place for it to be 100% believable. I just didn't enjoy the match itself. And I can't recall a single on a pole match that I've actually enjoyed. And we don't count Judy Bagwell on a forklift, mainly because she was on a forklift and I was shit hammered. But I mean, this is something that we mentioned after the show had stopped recording last week when we were discussing with Sarah, that a lot of wrestling these days is aimed at the kids' market, which mm. is a little bit bizarre as this show in America goes out between 8 and 11 o'clock at night, but it's aimed at children. But in this era, this show was aimed at sort of, you know, the 18-plus the audience. It was aimed at people who were going to go out clubbing afterwards or going to go out drinking. You know, it, it was aimed at people who would have been drinking while they were watching it. You say, point. you say, I watched the shit hammered. That was the audience that we're going for. <laughs> I should have watched it drunk. I, I don't know about the crowd response to this match, personally. This is the one match I thought the crowd kind of... They came a little bit during it. They, they, they got to certain points and they... Excuse me. <laughs> well, 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 that's the ringing endorsement, isn't it? <laughs> was it any chance when Test's ass came out? Oh, I, that was me. Anyway, genuinely, there was a there was a massive pop when Tess Bump came out, and it was definitely female. There was an audible. It's like when Jeff Hardy takes his shirt off, and you hear that sort of female scream just echo across the arena. I don't but, know when Tess's ass came out, I squealed. The, the, the crowd just didn't. I don't know. This is the match where they kind of didn't feel invested. And it's weird because the, the week before, Tess actually won a Four Corners elimination match against Big Boss Man Midian and Viscera. So this was technically a rematch from the week before. I get there was pops for the pole spots, but other than that, the match just... I... Test was still um, in his infancy as far as wrestling careers go. I think Test became a lot better than people give him credit for. And you see that as you progress through 1999. Ed, uh, Edge, Test became really, really good throughout the year and got really over. But at this point, he's still just the guy who, and, and they said it on commentary, the bodyguard for the Motley crew. That's all Test was at that point. And it's weird seeing Bossman be this detestable, maniacal, just low-down shit when you know damn well backstage, and this has been quoted, I think Steve Austin's talked about it before, Ray Trailer, the man, was the biggest sweetheart in the world. Like, God rest him, absolute legend in wrestling, but apparently he was the biggest sweetheart. I think he was Mr. Running with Steve Austin um, at the end of a match, and Austin went backstage all hot because Austin was like that back then and got into his face about it, and Trailer was almost in tears apologising <laughs> because he missed the cue and was just absolutely heartbroken about it because Ray Trailer was an absolute sweetheart. I've heard that about Bossman as well. I've heard yeah. the same stories. Same um, as Vader. Same as Vader. 
absolute beast in the ring, sweetheart backstage. I will give it its credit, though. There were a real, couple of really cool uh, bits in this match. One that springs to mind is um, when Bossman's feet were in the ring, his midsection was through the middle and top rope, and his head's facing up. And Tess just like hitting him, but he's holding onto the ropes and trying to drag himself back up. And you just end up with this pendulum effect. Yeah. Now, this is ironic because I hate the spots where people have to like hold themselves up in the corner for like a stomp or double knees or something like that. But this felt like it was logical and, and obeying like the laws of physics. He didn't just have to duck to get out of the way. It was legit caught and getting twatted and going backwards and forwards, but not hard enough to break his grip. Like that just really made me laugh. I love a, that. It was, yeah, it was so good. It was like an 80s spot. I'm, I'm sure I've seen that in uh, 80s territory wrestling, the, the, the pendulum essentially in, in the ropes. It, it, it's a very common, like old school spot. Because it gets the baby face, that sort of build-up of they're getting the offense in, and it's funny because the heel's getting the heel looks a fucking idiot. So you get the yeah. baby face pop coming up through that. And now going back to what Rob said about the crowd, there were a few big pops in that. The one thing I've noted down about the crowd, yes, they did, they did, uh, you know, they got they got up and and they were cheering at points. For a lot of it, it felt like they were more watching what was going on, on the screen and then trying to get the signs over. Mm. For for a good portion of the match, I don't know if either of you guys saw that. There was a lot of signs, and uh, but that, again, that was indicative of the error. There was one guy who kept like lifting his shirt up every time he knew the camera was on him. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I didn't see that. Thankfully, I can't in good conscience put put it in the top five because. It wasn't. It wasn't the worst match I've ever seen. It wasn't the worst on a pole match I've ever seen. But I don't think it was top five worthy. Oh was no, I, I didn't think either of you would uh, agree for that. I just wanted to talk about on a pole matches. Fair it wasn't enough. even the worst match on this card. But as far as fan response goes, for me, this was the one match where the fans weren't there. You know that this for me was the piss break match of the show. Oh, that that that's strong words considering we've had the women's match. Yeah, but the women's match had Sable in it, and and, and I speak as nineteen ninety nine year old jock fan. As nineteen ninety nine year old. Yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> I speak as a fan from back in nineteen ninety nine. You know the jock mentality of she's got enormous breasts, therefore she must be sexy. That's that was a pull that Sable had, and it was proven actually later on with Deborah in the uh, Jarrett and Venus match that. You know, fans will pop for breasts. So, what's your next one, Matt? Should we talk about Owen Hart? Yeah. As, as a point. So, Owen Hart wasn't on this show. He wasn't booked on this show. He was. He was. He, he was in Jeff Jarrett's Titantron. Don't know if anyone noticed that, but he was there in Jarrett's Titantron. That was it. But this, as far as this podcast goes, this is the last raw that this podcast will cover where Owen Hart was actually alive. And I think it's just, not even to put it in the top five, I think it's just worth talking about Owen Hart and the career that he had. For me, personally, it's hard to look at Owen and Brett and compare them, if you know what I mean. As a technical wrestler, Brett Hart was probably the best to ever live. You know, you've got Brett Hart, you've got Chris Benoit, you've got Kurt Angle. These guys are just technically perfect. But Owen... How would you word it? Owen had the mic skills. He had the facials. 
he had the high flying that he could sell. The guy felt like he was on the precipice of main eventing and a title run during his entire career. And for that to be snatched away the way that it was, it's the definition of unfair for me. Yeah, and it it goes beyond wrestling. You know, there's his whole family and the rest of his life sort of thing. It's obviously a complete tragedy. In In terms of his wrestling career, you know, when Bret Hart had gone to WCW and he came back and he cut that promo, I I would have easily seen him be WWF champion at that point. And and it's just a crying shame that Shawn Michaels politicked his way out of having to face him. With Owen, it goes to show the, the impact that he had that my dad, we, we just happened upon wrestling. In, in 1992 and obviously then I was hooked so you know watched it every week he remembers the Hart family because Brett was my favourite but by association he remembers Owen but I was making my notes for this last night and the promo video for Over the Edge came on and he was walking through he saw the logo for Over the Edge and uh he didn't quite know the relevance, but he said, "Over the edge, that was that was something that was something bad with Owen Hart, wasn't it?" And I said, "Yeah, it, it was the the show where what happened happened." And uh, he said, "I remember." He said, "I remember watching that with you when you were when you were ten. It was terrible, and even he remembered how good Owen Hart was and how entertaining he was, so, and all of that. It was Owen Hart. You're saying you couldn't quite quantify it, mate." Owen Hart was a total package wrestler. He could literally mm. do everything. But more than that, he had that intangible factor. He had that spark that could make you love him when he was wanting to be loved or hate him when he was wanting to be hated. We've seen it just on the shows we've reviewed when Owen was uh, the workhorse in uh, a tag team match where he was tagging with Yoko against Men on a Mission. And it, uh, when he was the corner man for Bulldog in the arm wrestling contest and he was a chirpy little shithead in the corner and he just, he, he kind of stole focus. You know, he's telling him that uh, Rob's favourite thing about it, I think, was, uh, oh, I'm, I'm a Johnson's too oily. He's too oily and like, everybody's covered in oil. <laughs> you know, and then we covered, as Rob alluded to, we covered the promo when he uh, when Owen just came through the crowd into the ring after the screw job and he gave that impassioned speech about he's here to he's here to be is uh, it basically here to avenge the shit that went down with his family he doesn't care about a bit of tin and leather that's the show I was on wasn't it yeah and just going back to it I remember the things that that spring into my mind are the uh, the European title match with uh, Bulldog when they were just blatantly having so much fun. Was that in Germany? In Germany, yeah, in Leipzig, yeah. when they were when they were one up in each other. So Owen would do a handspring, Bulldog would do a headspring, and stuff like that. And it was just magic because there was no, there wasn't a lot of animosity. You could tell it was just two dudes who respect each other and love each other, trying to outdo one another. And that was just one of the. It, it's up there with one of my favourite matches. There's obviously you know the match with uh, the couple of matches with Brett. I think it was it SummerSlam. 94 in the cage and WrestleMania 10. 10. 
What a match. That is my favourite WrestleMania match of all time. That's what I was leading you into. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, oh, it's it's magic. It's actual magic. You, you see occasionally guys that, like, look at the Hardy brothers. The, the Hardy boys have worked matches together over the years, and they're all right. But Owen and Brett, fucking hell. It was, it, it was just magic. And for it to end on a roll, sorry, spoiler alert for everyone who's not seen WrestleMania 10, for it to end on a roll-up, just and for Owen to get that shit shit house win, and then go backstage and cut a promo where he's like, "Damn it, I showed I'm the best. I am," it. and just ranting about how he's the best heart. And Brett's gonna win the WWF title later in the night, but no, Owen is the best heart, and just everything about Owen just spoke of he was a frugal bastard. He wouldn't stay in hotels on the road. He stayed with fans. He would stay in fans' houses. And the ribs, man, Jesus. I, I, I can't remember the whole story to give it credence. But my favourite one is when Davy Boy's wife was on Raw. And the angle was that Shawn Michaels had been sleeping with Davy Boy's wife. And I think it was Diana's, Diana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Diana, Diana Hart. And, and Owen comes into the, into the locker room towards the, uh, after the show and, and gives a phone to Jim Cornette and it's a red phone and it's just a red phone and the card goes out of the door and Jim Cornette's immediately gone, right, this is Owen, just Owen in. It, it, it's what it is. So he picks up and Owen goes, it, it's Stu, he wants to talk to you, it's Stu. And Owen being Owen, he just no-sells it. So Jim picks up the phone and it's Stu going, eh, eh, don't like what you're uh, doing with the Diana uh, angle, you're making her look like a whore. On TV, that is a terrible Stu Hart impression. It's a terrible one, but I'm, I'm going with it. Leave me. Uh, <laughs> uh, you're making it look like a whore on TV. Uh, maybe you should uh, pull the angle. And as it goes, it goes on. And Jim Jim, Jim Cornette just throws um, Brother Love under the bus. Just for, uh, Which Pritchard? Bruce. He just throws Pritchard under the bus and went, yeah, it's, it's, it's Bruce. He's, he's a, you know what, you know what, it's Bruce. He's a pervert. Bruce Bruce Pritchard is a pervert and that's why he's doing it. At this point, Jim Carnett thinks it's Owen Hart doing an impression of Stu Hart because that's what Owen Hart would do. Just just rib him like that. So when he comes back in and takes a phone, he's like, Owen, who the fuck was that? It was Stu. The fuck do you mean it was Stu? As Bruce walks in thinking Bruce is the one who's done the impression. Like Google it and watch it on YouTube. It's phenomenal, and it just sums up what Owen Hart was like. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely beautiful human being, and it's a damn shame that one he's, he never got to be the world champion. Two, he's not in the Hall of Fame, and that's for reasons that we we shan't go into. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I don't know if it's worth mentioning what follows this. So obviously. Owen has his fall at Over the Edge and Owen's family end up suing WWF. It's WWE by the point. They settle. WWE settle for £18 million. WWE's lead attorney, Craig O'Dea of uh, Brian Cave, LLP, says that in the, in the statement of settling that um, problems existed with the... Lomar Trigger, so Lomar's the company that's sort of set up the harness, and they subsequently sue Lomar. Uh, Lomar settles out of court again with WWE for £9 million, and the Lomar chairman, Arthur McMillan, 
says that the decision to settle was based on commercial considerations rather than believing that there was anything wrong with the equipment, although uh, allegedly, apparently, etc. I think they were using a a new release mechanism for his case. Obviously, everyone settled out of court, so it's very difficult to yeah. in mm-hmm. uh, any blame or, or any uh, responsibility for this uh, or even get to the bottom of what, what really happened. But, um, you know, an, an absolute tragedy and, and considering there'd been so much of this in wrestling before that, you know, Sting had been dropping from the rafters for months. Uh, I do believe it was actually the same company that did uh, that did Sting's rigging as well. Yeah, Michael's at twelve. Michael's at Mania twelve. Yeah, with what was essentially the same entrance. Yeah, it's just I believe Owen was terrified of heights as well. But mm-hmm. Owen just being the consummate professional as he was, you know, terrified of heights. But you want me to do it? I'll do it. Yeah, it's a great shame. Owen was utterly fantastic in pretty much everything he did. He uh, actually, I, I, I think. Don't get me wrong. I might be. I might be getting the wrong mania here. But was it WrestleMania three that he actually had the blue blazer gimmick? He, he definitely had it previously. Yeah, um, I, I know it was early, and I can't remember which mania it was, but I, I feel like it was three or something like that that he was at mania as the blue blazer. Definitely a character that he'd worked before, and then he sort of came back to this image. But again, you know... Sorry, it was five. WrestleMania five. It, it just, uh, it's just a shame <clears throat> to go back to this gimmick, and, you know, because the main event scene didn't want to work with him sort of thing when he felt like he should have been in that position. But I think we all felt like he should have been in that position. Yeah. Mm. As I said at the start, it's not necessarily as a top five thing. I just think it was worth remembering... One of the best wrestlers that will genuinely ever lived. You look at wrestlers that you think in their career should be world champions, and ninety nine percent of people will say Owen Hart without a shadow of a doubt. They'll either say Owen Hart, Scott Hall, or Kurt Hennig. As I said, I whether it goes on the top five or not, not too concerned. Just think Owen Hart is worth discussing when it's this close to what would happen. I feel yeah. I feel like we've we've given Owen Hart a special mention because it's our last chance. Certainly, the whole incident shaped a lot of uh, a lot of my future as a wrestling fan because the the incident happened. I watched the pay per view. We'd recorded it live off. Um, I think it must have been Sky at the time. That was Sky. I would have I mean, been Sky Sports. Yeah, we recorded it. I watched it with my dad. It obviously, you know, it obviously stuck with him. But then the, the the tribute Raw was, and I'm pretty sure this must have been the same for you, Matt. It was the first time I saw these superheroes, these supervillains, as actual people. Yeah. yeah, the only other time since then's been Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, but that was incredibly powerful, and in a macabre, heartbreaking way, was. A fitting was was a great addition to Owen's legacy, and that he united so many people, even though they're united in grief and mourning. Not one person I've ever seen in any interview, book, written text, anything, and nobody has ever had a bad word to say about Owen. Yeah, and 
not to get too existential over it all, but if if any of us can go out and have that that said about us, it speaks to what kind of an incredible person he was, mm. and is something that I would aspire to be, even half of. Yeah, well said. So what's everybody drinking? Because I've gone through my first three and I've got another three lined up. Yeah. I'm, I'm just on uh, Punk IPA now. <laughs> Sorry, I, f- I felt like we just needed a complete tonal shift. It's, it's, what's li- it's what lining my three... What tonal shift? Like like earlier Raws, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Let's have a kid-friendly product and then let's get someone out here to just go, Fuck! <laughs> Well, talking about that and, you know, doing something just to be controversial and, as you said, we wouldn't get a BrewDog sponsorship. I've got a BrewDog Tiramisu crew, which is a barrel-aged Imperial Stout at 12%. Well, you're not forgetting, Rob. Fuck them. (laughs) And and I think they're an indie brewery that we should support. Oh, right. All right. Would would you describe yourself as a BrewDog Ultra? No, it just happened to be in the fridge. Oh, fair enough. (laughs) I've uh, I've gone through my uh, my new Bristol chocolate macaroon stout. It was very nice, solid uh, solid three point seven five out of five. The new guy, a friend in me from Brew York, was decent as well. Not one of my favourites from Brew York, but still a very nice beer. Uh, the Laguna Sunrise went down an absolute treat, very much like what Matty was drinking earlier. Did not taste as strong as it was, so I'm going to get less and less coherent as it goes on. I've just cracked into a uh, a Dexter, which is a salted caramel stout from uh, Kirkstall Brewery, All right. which not, I've not actually had a swig of yet. And then I've got a uh, a, Northern, a Northern Monk Northern Star chocolate caramel biscuit porter and a Turning Point Hickory Clan Caviar, which is a maple and pe- uh, pecan Danish stout. Where's your brew dog, Dan? Up your ass. Oh, what's your next one, Dan? <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, I've got stuff to talk about. I'm I'm kind of torn. I've got a couple of uh, I've got a couple of things to talk about, and I, I'm torn between the the one that I know you're expecting me to talk about, and the one that I don't really th- that I <laughs> that you probably won't see coming being brought up by me. So I'm going to go for the latter, and I'm going to go for the Jeff Jarrett versus Val Venus match. Ooh. Whoa! Yeah, <laughs> can you feel that? <laughs> Uh, listen, listen up, slap nuts. This isn't what I expect for this podcast. <laughs> we all so, expected Kane, and instead, yeah. <laughs> right. So Rob, maybe you um, won't bring up Kane for the rest of his podcast just so Dan can't go off on one, right? I've got, um, I've got, I've got one. I've got one more. Oh shit! I mean, <laughs> the, the thing is, Dan, you're on, you're on thin ice here because I, I'm, I actually like Jeff Jarrett, so. <laughs> I respect yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but Matt's involved. No, I respect <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, and I will, I will explain why. I have an irrational hatred of him. I do, I do respect his achievements, but I think most of them are wrong. No, um, I'll explain why. I respect him. It, it's well documented on this. I never said I didn't respect him, by the way. It's well documented, the irrational hatred I have of Jeff Jarrett, and it's completely understandable, the completely rational hatred I have of Val Venus, currently. However, this match... Despite the fact that this this is actually the most tolerable version of Jeff Jarrett for me, even though he came out looking like somebody bought Guy Fieri on Wish. They have an issue that came up earlier in the show. Jarrett's just lamps Venus with the guitar, and it might be a wider issue than that, but whatever. But the match, and you know, Venus had the promo that Rob alluded to earlier. So there's a there's a point for it, which is great. 
it was actually probably in terms of like an actual wrestling match, probably the best match on the show in terms of what went on in the ring. And I have to give credit where it's due. It was actually, if I take my, my natural bias out of it, even though Jarrett did that stupid fucking strut in the middle of it that I hate. Was Jim Ross correctly named a Fargo strut? He did. He did. It's not Buddy Rogers. It's not Ric Flair. It's Jackie Fargo. And, yeah. and Jarrett at the end made this noise. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Which just threw me off completely. <laughs> but it was, it was a really good match. And, and particularly... The end sequence. There was a whole thing about them being evenly matched. It was a decent back and forth. You know, like there was a bit where Val was following Jarrett into the ropes, well, off the Irish whips and just kneeing him in the gut, hit the Russian leg sweep, and then Deborah comes up for the distraction. Because obviously, we, we, as we've alluded to, Val Venus was was going after Deborah and all of that. So she's up on the apron, just trying to distract him. Jarrett rolls Val up for two. Val hits a big spine buster. He goes up for the splash. Uh, apparently, all it takes to distract a professional athlete from matches for Deborah to take a to take a jacket off. So Val jumps down for some uh, casual sexual assault, which was terrible. But Deborah slips Jarrett the women's title, slaps Val in the face, and Jarrett just levels him with the belt for the three. And it was just a moment where, for all the bullshit that they had to go through earlier, Deborah had actually got one up on Val. And like I said, it was a really good match. I thought the finish was creative, if not wholly tasteful, shall we say. I, don't know, I, th- I hope that's a fair way to put it. The thing is, though, with, with that finish, you, you say not wholly tasteful. They, they just hug. Mm. You know... They, he, was, he, was trying to, he was trying to get a hickey or something. They, they couldn't have been a more PG result to... Val Venus's sexual assault. To be fair, I'm I'm pretty drunk at this point. I might be I might be misremembering it. This match for me stood out as a wrestling match. On a sports entertainment show, this was a wrestling match. Oh god, the, this is gonna go on the top five. The the only thing I'm gonna say about, you know, negative about this match is the crowd and Jerry Lawler let themselves down. Jerry Lawler did, but I thought the crowd were in this match, personally. The crowd were constantly chanting. Oh, we yeah, that. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, that, that. The crowd were in this match, but y- you have to preface that with because of Deborah. I don't know. They didn't chant that in WCW. You know, we'd covered on a previous episode when we were on Nitro. Uh, this about... one roars the frat boy crowd, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. That's actually you know, the best way to put it. The frat boy crowd. It's the kids that grew up in the 80s have grown up with it. Just you wait for next episode when we get the Nitro party with the loady stands. Just let me know a date and I'm watching it because I want to see this now. It's, uh, it's embarrassing. They should, they should be embarrassed with themselves. They really should. But I, I am in agreement with both of you. I think this should be on our top five. <laughs> No. Yes. Yes. No. Yes. No, that's it. Matt, you're the co-host now. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I don't think that this is the best version of Jeff Jarrett. I think WCW slap nuts Jeff Jarrett and then NWA TNA. Um, Jeff Jarrett. Oh. Bye, Piers. 
it, it's funny that Dan's walking off to the show when Dan actually <laughs> recommends <laughs> one. Dan's brought this one up. I want to talk about Jeff Jarrett. That's weird for me. No, fuck you for talking about Jeff Jarrett. Yeah, uh, you, you know. This reminds me of our, you know, that, that period of our troop when he was with little Jimmy and he was tagging. <laughs> and he'd come to the ring and he'd say, Don't boo me, you should be booing yourself. Yeah, you fucking don't boo yourself <laughs> up and then be oh, pissed when people agree. I fucked up so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we go back and do, do you want another point? Do you want to bring up another point? No, because I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my point. There's Rob's next. Rob, bring up Kane. <laughs> and then we, me and you can veto it. <laughs> We've actually agreed on five now, and the king of the mountain is the fifth. Yes! <laughs> I'm a dick. Guy. I'm such a dick. <laughs> I mean, Dan. And now my microphone stinks. You're playing checkers, and me and Matt are playing chess. Yep. That, that playing, Dan playing checkers, and you guys are pricks. Are the five? So we've got our five. We've got the Union slash Shawn Michaels promo. We've got Deborah versus Sable in an evening gown match. We've got the Sublime Patterson and Bristow versus the Mean Street Posse. We've got the Beaver Cleavage promo, and we've got Jeff Jarrett versus Val Venus. And <laughs> I think this, this is incredible. For a show that's main event with Shane McMahon, Triple H, and The Undertaker with China versus Vince McMahon, The Rock, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And Kane opened the show. <laughs> I, I disagree with Jeff Jarrett and Val Venus. Fuck you, there's two against one. You can't disagree with it, Dan. I might talk about the one you expect me to talk about, but no, I'm going to be subversive. Yeah, how did that go? And, and, what, it's, got, it's got some gold content now, hasn't it? <laughs> but the thing is, Dan, you've skipped over China versus Ken Shamrock. Because it wasn't the, a match. The acolytes exploding in a lumberjack match that didn't feature zombies. Who cares? <laughs> Timely-ish, because this is late, so... <laughs> so anyway, uh, I want to talk about the opener. <laughs> so, so now it's time for an ad break, and we'll go through the advertisements that appeared on the show. I really liked Kane's pyro. Jeff Boyardee. What? Oh, you meant the. <laughs> so we got an advert for the WWF Rewind for One Eight Hundred Collect, and they also sponsored Over the Edge. There mm. was an advert for. Fram ExtraGuard, the only filter with a rough top to make changing your filter easier. I assume that was a smoking thing. No, that, that was um, oil filter. I'm a smoker. It was a smoking thing. And as you alluded to, Matt, the Chef Boyardee overstuffed beef ravioli. Yeah, yeah. I really want ravioli. <laughs> I want ravioli now. Yeah, I might go to Tesco and I'm finished to get some ravioli. It's walking. still working. 22 years later, the ravioli commercial is still working. Walking half-cut going, where's your ravioli? 
You wouldn't even do that. You just kick the door in after the club. You go, ravioli. Give, give me pasta filled with meat. I, I don't know if you've noticed, but when you go to Asda now, the cashiers seem to give a running commentary of what you're buying. <laughs> so, so I had actually bought some ravioli, and she was giving me a rundown of the rating of it. I don't know if they've been told to do that or if they're just... What the fuck? Rating? Yeah, oh, yeah, God, yeah. yeah it... <laughs> What's a ravioli, ravioli rating? Uh, well, you see, this was a spinach and ricotta ravioli. So that, that rated relatively highly on the scale. I don't know how the overstuffed beef ravioli would have rated. Scale of one to what the fuck? What's, what's the scale? Well, I think basically the, the Chef Boyardee overstuffed beef ravioli is probably Meltzer rating an Omega match in the Tokyo Dome. We got an advert for Briscoe Brothers Body Shop that Gerald Briscoe was wearing the T-shirt for. Briscoe Brothers... We've got an advert for USA Network's Happy Hour, and it said it was featuring celebrities of Garrett Morris, Veronica's Closets, Wallace Langren, and Weasel, as well as Ahmed Zappa. Now, it, I, I don't know about American celebrities, but they sound pretty zedless to me. This one blew me a little bit. Was that kind of like... Because I looked at the pictures, and I genuinely thought, was this one of those weird radio shows that's made TV? You know, you know what I mean? Like, it, it looked like in 1999 to now, now, now eyes, it looked like two podcast hosts that have made TV. Do you know what I mean? If me, if, if me and Rob turn up on uh, on some random YouTube. On T4. Yeah. I, we're more famous than some of these people. Don't Honestly, looking yeah. at them, the, the guys on it, oh, I can't remember his bloody name now. Who's that really controversial American radio host? Larry King. Howard Stern. Howard Stern, yes. That's what I was thinking of. One of them looked like Howard Stern with the stupid hair and and the other guy just looked like a generic sort of radio host. But that one really threw me because JR really threw his his everything behind. JR threw everything behind everything in this show, though, to be fair. And previously I've said about our demographics are in terms of listeners from Britain, etc., and said that previously we had been exclusively British. We're up to 47% of our listeners are now American. So if you do know who these people are, please uh, comment and tell us. And, and also, I'm American, I'm sorry that me and Dan did that C word a lot. I'm not. But, uh, <laughs> but what I would ask is, uh, please find our ignorance about your celebrities charming. A friend of mine went to New York once. Dan, you've met him. You know him as the man who once said, Fanny like a punch lasagna. <laughs> He, uh, he went to New York, and do you know how the traffic is in New York? Yeah. A taxi kind of came into him and, and stopped right in front of him, and, and he literally leaned in to the, into the windshield and just went, cunt, at it. And the driver just kind of went, Ugh. and I had no idea what to do with that aggression from an Englishman. So I'm sorry, Americans, our language is horrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, and, and that's how we greet each other in the morning. It really is in Yorkshire. It really is. <laughs> hey, up, come. All right, come. We had an advert for Shawn Michaels Wrestling Academy on Shawn Michaels' T-shirt. That gave us Daniel Bryan. It was Daniel Bryan. Yeah. Although turn- Shawn Michaels has since said he sort of regrets doing the, uh, the school, right? Because he was um, one memorable pupil. 
No, he was he was a really good wrestler, and Ric Flair has said the same thing. Like, just because you're a really good wrestler, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a good teacher. Fair point. Good when you look at people like Rick, yeah, like Ric Flair, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, these guys who you you watch them, and it is just second nature. The stuff that they do is just this is just what they do. How do you explain to someone who's completely green in it? Like, well, this is how I did it. Yeah, but how did you do it? Well, like this. What were the steps? That kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? And but, I don't that, think... but, that, but that goes back to like sports coaching or anything. Just yeah, because yeah, yeah. someone's a great football player doesn't mean they're a great manager. Yeah, frankly. Or a great coach. Or, or anything like that. And yes, that's the first person that came to my mind as well. Yeah, Gary yeah, Neville. Frank Lampard. Gary Neville. What? Um... <laughs> no, you got a point. <laughs> um... yeah, but, but Roy Keane's exactly the same. And, and apparently he used to get extremely frustrated at um, players in the Ireland squad that they weren't just world-class. Yeah. I don't... I think with Shawn Michaels' school, it's kind of... It's a point that your natural skills aren't necessarily transferable in that regard. And now he's in NXT as a coach, isn't he? He is. But I guess in NXT, they sort of part it out into different skills, don't they? So they'll have promo classes, they'll have mm. you know, things that focus in ring, all those kind of things. So I, I guess he can focus on. Yeah, what would you put Shawn Michaels in charge of? Can't say that for libel reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fr- from the episodes we've reviewed, looking surly and not wanting to do a job class. Ring psychology. <laughs> Politicking. Uh, I think that's what they call it, isn't it? Ring psychology. Yeah. How to make Vince McMahon get dollar signs in his eyes like a cartoon character. What, tell him he can bang his own daughter? <laughs> no incest angle. The, uh, the, the views of uh, Mr. Matthew Scott do not represent <laughs> the views of uh, UTT podcast. Oh, let's meet docs on the internet. So in terms of adverts that we've had for the show, got a shout out from Chain Wrestling on the podcast, so very much appreciated. Just a special shout out for Steve-O from uh, at Total Steve-O who we forced into doing Booker T impression last week. and we had You, you forced into. Oh, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It is great. I do love Steve. He's an absolute sound fella. Love everything he does. Andy from Bang Bang Podcast posted a video of René Goulet making a crepe Suzette. Did he? Yes, he did. Yeah, in response oh, to Oh, fuck, I missed that. What the hell oh, is brilliant. a crepe Suzette? And René Goulet said that he, if he ate one every day, he'd weigh 300 pounds. It's a good job I've never had one, because I'd be even fatter. What's a crepe soulette? Well, it, it's a, uh, a type of crepe. But within, <laughs> Cheers, Rob, thanks! Within, within this, Vince McMahon, and I think it was, Lord, it was either Lord Alfred Hayes or Mean Gene Oakland and René Goulet trying to make this crepe soulette, so with um, uh, a lady from... I presume it's the cooking channel. It hadn't turned the um, gas heater on, so it wasn't cooking. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing that really annoys me about students. When they go to university and say, how do you fry an egg? And so many students say it. Good, good. You turn it on and then just it just sort of happens. See, my, it, biggest, my biggest culinary fuck-up at uni was when I was drunk trying to defrost some chia batters. Shall we talk about Christian's biggest culinary fuck-up? No, because I'm talking about mine. Um, <laughs> I, I, forgot to, I forgot to set the... It was first year, so I was 18. I forgot to set the microwave to defrost. 
So I just knew, absolutely fucking knew some park up cheer batters. And the, the whole kitchen was filled with smoke after a few minutes. I visited that house and that isn't the worst smoke it was full of. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I can't recount that. I went to visit Dan. Um, we went to a raw taping in what year was it, Dan? 2000. It'd have been April 2008. Um, if you watch it back on the network, you get to the uh, JB on Triple H match and you will faintly hear a You've Got Man Boobs chant. They've um, muted yeah. it. Yeah, oh, they muted it. The, the, oh, they've, dulled it down, they've dulled it down so much it's barely audible, but it still exists on the DVD of the tour. Yeah, damn right it does. Um, but we're in Dan's room at this point, me, Dan and Christian are sleeping in Dan's room, and we hear Dan's housemate get back at about five in the morning, and we hear Guitar Hero launch up, and then they brum, and then ba-dum-dum. you can't play this when you're fucking stoned. <laughs> and that was it. That was, that was silence for the rest of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Just for guitar going. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, you can't play this when you're stoned. But said in a said in a very much uh, southern accent. Yeah, yeah. Yes, oh. Matthews lived in that house. Yeah, he <laughs> it, it, it wasn't him playing guitar hero either, because uh, he's because no, he's very northern. That is the response as Matthews gets. Just I've seen him be over. Ish. I was in the crowd. So Danny at Scottish Juggalo said that he loved that quote we had when we said that Dave Meltzer can always fall back on a career in journalism if his current career doesn't pan out. Again, um, Rob, that was you. Uh, no, no, no. D- Rob was right. I laughed a lot at that. Dave Meltzer. Oh, no, just... I, I agree with it. It's just that was that was all Rob. Don't blame Rob for something you agree with. I'm not blaming him. I'm giving him the fucking credit. Rob said we. I'm, I'm making Rob take the credit for the good joke that he done did. John Bombard, he was exactly right. Uh, I broken Rob's right twice a day. <laughs> Frank Jofo <laughs> from Jofo in the Ring said, show your support for UTT podcast. So very much appreciated. As um, always. Mag said uh, that he spit his lemsip out when we told the story about Dan sleeping his way to the top in the supermarket. <laughs> Wait, is that... <laughs> Is that so weird? Yes, it has. Um, I, I was talking about, for some reason we were talking about when I worked at the supermarket and the only person I know who got anywhere shagged the way to the top and Rob came back with the line of, oh, well, Dan, at least you got somewhere or something no, along those lines. I just listened to that today. In fact, that line came up while I was dumping a load of dirt into a skip and I nearly fell over laughing at Rob's <laughs> rebuke. Yeah, and it's just like as, as if I would get anywhere like that. I, I said, as long as you can live with yourself. That was the. Uh... That was it. Yeah. Yeah, let's uh, not the, talk the, about the, that story. Me and you know, Dan. The, the irony being that the uh, the person in question who was shagging the manager to get places was actually dating one of my cousins, while still shagging their way to the top. Dan, why did you date your own cousin? <laughs> I feel attacked. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about the time you broke your penis. No. <laughs> Sorry, so, Rob, carry on. So, Good Cop, Bad Cop podcast said um, that they loved that I'd been talking about uh, standard deviation and variance. And I thought I was going to be really smart on this one. I thought I've got another maths geek listening to the show. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go and, you know, do, do some maths. And unfortunately, rather than doing it on the Ed Ferrara and Vince Russo period, 
added it on Kevin Nash because I'm trying to get myself. So Kevin Nash is a downward trend. And the reason I know this is because I've applied uh, logistic regression to it and I've got an R squared of 0.66. So there you I go. Bad cop uh, podcast. <laughs> I love the analytical side of this podcast. I must admit, genuinely, like at the start of it, when Rob brings up like, this was the highest, this was the lowest, this is the average. I fucking love that. I, I I really mark out for that. And then I'm just there like, this is Patrick. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, but no, I love like just hearing how how the numbers break down because it makes you think: Are people tuning in for the booking, or are we, sorry for the booker, or just kind of because that's what's there, you know? I, well, I think, that, I think the booker has a massive effect because oh yeah, I mean you you look at this period of RAW when Vince Russo comes in. All of a sudden, they stabilise the ship with Jim Carnett. Then it goes up massively. And then it goes up even more when he's with Ed Ferrara. But you'd had this period before where it was just plopping along and going sort of up and down and, and not really doing very much through, you know, Vince McMahon and Bill Watts and Pritchard and Pritchard and Carnett before that. So there was definitely a seed change when Russo came in. Now, apparently, Carnett wanted out, by the way. Like when Cornet left, he was like trying to get out of his contract, and I, I think that is due to his um, inability, let's call it, to work with Russo. Yeah, I mean, Bruce Pritchard said that he wasn't working well with that man either. So it, it's kind of I, I think I think the problem with Jim Cornet is that it's kind of Jim Cornet way or the highway. Yeah, and I mean, I say this as someone who does respect Jim Connett's opinion on a lot of things. Not not necessarily the current trend of wrestling. I mean, as in, I see him as seeing what wrestling used to be, okay? The dude bleeds wrestling. Like, there's, there's no way to deny it. So, when he came with WWE, that wasn't really a conscious choice, if that makes sense. That was more of a Smoky Mountain was going under and then he was in the meetings and then he was all of a sudden head of creative. And it was one of them things where it's kind of everything sort of happened and fell into line. But I think if, if you're a wrestling fan now and you immediately just poo-poo everything that Jim Cornette says, you don't understand what Jim Cornette went through. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with it. I mean, ju- just on that, I think that Vince was Vince McMahon was kind of waiting for Smoky Mountain to go under. I think he wanted to bring in Jim Carnett to work with Bruce Pritchard. I there's think a, he saw that. There's a story there. Carnett apparently got in touch with Vince and said, um, "You know, if it's a ten grand a, a month more, Smoky Mountain could carry on." And it was kind of an, an, an off the cuff comment in 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 the vein of, "Well, Vince is currently funding ECW." As you guys discussed recently, Vince is currently, you know, funding this promotion. So maybe he'll just sling me 10k a month and I can keep this promotion going. And Vince sort of stopped for a minute and went, well, pal, you let me know if you go under because I'd really like you to be here. I think it had taken him up on it had not the Bruce Pritchard era been so bad. Yeah. Like, um, Cornette really sort of came in at the wrong point where he sort of inadvertently screwed the pooch on himself. Yeah, if he'd said that, you know, during Bill Watts or whatever, he'd probably gone for it. But r- wrong time to uh, to ask for that, really. Like fun thing with AEW fans, 
getting mad about Cornet, for example. It's only Cornet's side, I must say, but he 100% alleges he was approached by AEW to have a consultant role to the point that he's actually signed an NDA uh, where he can't discuss what was talked about in those early meetings. So, you know. I, I can believe that, though. You know, I mean, the thing with Jim Cornette, when, when he's right, it's magic. When he's wrong, he's straight a long way from... Oh, yeah. Like, you listen to his podcast and you hear things he says and you immediately go, well, that's about to make dirty headlines. Yeah. That was a horrible thing to say. Uh, and I think, I think part of it's a gimmick. I think he likes causing that. Well, you know, as Eric Bischoff said, controversy creates cash. Yeah. So the next comment we got was actually from you, Matt. He said, Hello. Fun, uh, fun reliving Dan moaning about his Good Friday fish and chips. <laughs> because we have a group chat going, and I won't say the name of it because I don't know what it is actively right now. But Dan kicked off about this on Good Friday. Now, I don't work Friday, so I've got my, you know, I'm sitting there watching Sky Sports News with my phone in front of me, and Dan's kicking off going, it's been two hours. Yeah, dickhead, it's Good Friday. I have, already, I, have, I have already said as well that part of my anger no, was no, no, my no. own stupidity. Yeah, not on the night you didn't. On the night you refused to acknowledge that. But after a period of self-reflection... <laughs> Well, it was like, to be honest, when I realised it, it was about a day, but I just didn't think it was worth bringing up. Fuck it. You're on the night, you were livid. You were. Yeah. You would not hear otherwise. You were livid. I don't get angry very often. Y- you do about food. But I'm a fat lad. Don't fuck with my food. But you don't order fish and chips on Good Friday. I know that now. Uh, why do you know that now? Because I'm dumb. I used to be smart, now I'm a bit dumb. <laughs> Leave me alone. Don't have fish and chips on Good Friday then. Uh, yeah, uh, fuck uh, you, uh, like you're a functioning adult. <laughs> at the risk of starting another argument, Matt, you also corrected Dan by saying that Father Jack had been awarded a cup and saucer. Oh yeah, I don't give a fuck about that, that's fine. No, 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 you brought that up earlier in the show. Yeah, so... <laughs> Stop, stop living in the past. Oh, okay. Right. Sorry. Typical Man United fan. Who's the Premier League champions this season? Going into this season, Liverpool were. This season? Going into this season, Liverpool were. <laughs> the current Premier League champions are Manchester City and deservedly so. And who might win a trophy this season when you don't? Chelsea. You know, you know that trophy you get for being the first team to win the league three years in a row. Mm-hmm. Huddersfield Town won that. Yeah, Huddersfield Town. So did Manchester United. But they ha- they weren't the first team to win the league. No, no, no! Don't take it away. Premier League is the only thing that counts. No, no. Sorry. Oh, look at him crying, living in the past. <laughs> in, in fact, Matt, Manchester United don't even know the way to the first team to win the league three years in a row trophy polish shop. I'm going to be honest, I, it, it kind of surprises me we did it twice. It's, it's one of them things that just kind of fell into history and doesn't really get mentioned alongside the treble and stuff like that. It's yeah, you just didn't set a record though, did you? So it don't count. Sorry, Aston. <laughs> in terms of five-star reviews we've had for the podcast, we had one from you, Matt. See, I'm on this twice now. Yeah. 
And we also had one from BFC Harris C, who said that Rob is one of the most natural that I've heard in a long time, and Dan's there too. Yeah. Wait. Ro Rob's a natural, Dan's a tubby bastard. That's what that is. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that makes me Butch Reed and Dan a Teletubby. It makes you Butch Reed and Dan fucking Yokozuna. That's what that makes it. Oh, we enjoyed Yoko. I, I, I wish I was uh, wish I was as athletic as Yokozuna. All right, fine. It makes you whatever that thing was and Dan Luther. Who? A.W. Luther. Oh, fuck no. I'm way more athletic. <laughs> uh, we also had a five-star review from Danish Concept. It said that we are a very enjoyable listen. Um, the guys have just the right chemistry to make the format work. I appreciate those comments. I, the very, very kindly received, and I only, I can only hope you still think the same after this clusterfuck of an episode. I love that just the right chemistry. <laughs> That's my favourite part of that. Just the right chemistry, and I owe tomorrow or less, and it just wouldn't fucking work. Is it just that? Is it that me and Rob work well together, or is it that we're just the right level of drunk? You two do work well together, to be fair. Works a very strong. Word. Yeah, Bob, Bob yeah. works, Dan turns up. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So now it's time for the awards section of the show. So, Matt, who would you give Match of the Night to? Uh, match of the Night, I sort of split down the middle, I'll be honest. We've already sort of talked about it. So from a wrestling standpoint, Val Venus and Jeff Jarrett had a very good wrestling match. I think the finish uh... was... A... All right. I think the finish was... Very screwy, but if you look at Jarrett through 1999, it's completely par for the course. Like that is a Jarrett match. He he wins because Deborah whips the top off throughout 1999. For for better or worse, that's how it is. However, for a match that just encapsulated just every major angle going into the pay per view is the one match we didn't actually talk about on this podcast. <laughs> the main event, like. Going into that match, you had Shane and Vince were an angle. You had Triple H and Rock were, were the semi-main, and you had Austin and Taker who were main eventing. Like, that match. So, for me, there was sort of a split in the match of the night. You had a really good wrestling match and a really good match that just sort of summed up what WWF was trying to do at the time and both delivered exactly how they should. Yeah, I mean, I've... I sort of agonised over this one, and there were sort of three that I was going between for very different reasons. I kind of, I, I kind of loved the Cactus Jack one for the the reason that Mick Foley always saves the show. Again, I wondered about putting Big Boss Man versus Test because it's got a, a pole and and wrestling hits its zenith. If it's either, on a pole or World of Sport rules, everything else <laughs> get it rid. But I'm going to give this. To the most joyful match of the night, which is Pat <laughs> versus the Mean Street Posse. Yeah. I'm willing to concede that that is the right call. Yeah, I agonised over match of the night as well, um, up until very, 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 very recently, as in 10 minutes ago when I realised that I hadn't talked about Kane enough. <laughs> oh, quick, do that thing where you stop it. <laughs> but I've already, I've already actually said in the show, it was fine. The K match was just, it was fine. I was actually going to agree with Rob and give it to Mean Street Posse versus the Stooges, because, you know, give it to Patterson and Briscoe because 
that was genuinely the it was just it was just pure joy and pure entertainment. It doesn't matter that it doesn't matter that there weren't like a bunch of flips and false finishes and all that. It was genuine, honest to fuck entertainment. Yeah, I think you two are right. I think on the pure basis of what what was just the happiest moment of the night, it was that match. What would you give moment of the night to Matt? Pop pass and flexing. <laughs> is what I wrote down. Because I was just so happy. Just everything about it, whipping the shirt off and the facial expression. Like, it, it was pure mockery. It was pure fuck you. This is how easy it is to repeat the pop that you got when you worked here. Nameless main event talent of the 80s. It was, oh, it was beautiful. <laughs> Just everything. Patterson flexing is the moment of the night and I will hear nothing else. I think we're really lucky to have got this part of Gerald Briscoe and Pat Patterson's career because it could have yeah. so easily have just not happened. You know, but, but a whole generation got introduced to Briscoe and Patterson that, that wouldn't have been otherwise. Yep. And, that, and made them fans. Actually endeared them to Briscoe and Patterson. Yeah, it was, it, it was a great moment. It's one of those um, iconic images. Like if you Google Pat Patterson, that's one of the pictures you'll see. That that bloody that face as he just (laughs) yeah. Pat Patterson (laughs) doing his Phil Jones impression. (laughs) Yes, one of many. But no, Patterson is a wrestler for the ages, ages over eighty to ninety, as as Jim as Jerry Lawler used to say. But he's a yeah, he's that that moment was moment of the night for me. Uh, my moment of the night actually is uh, something that we haven't talked about so far. So my moment of the night is actually when Kane's music hit and we got the first major pop of the night. <laughs> so full of shit. That's the biggest shoehorn I have ever seen in my life. Yes. <laughs> but I don't care. Bless you, Dan. Bless your little cotton socks. My moment of the night is the reveal that Shawn Michaels isn't in San Antonio. He's actually in the arena. The crowd went mad for it. That was great, to be fair, but it didn't involve Kane, so... If only Gerald Briscoe didn't miss his cue. <laughs> God, God bless him. Right, Gerald Briscoe, fuck you, that's me, shit. Help me off. God bless him. Oh, well, he was aged 80 to 90 in all fairness. Yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 54. <laughs> Gerald Briscoe on this episode it was three years older than Jericho is today. That is mad. But, it go, but again, it, it speak, it's what I alluded to earlier. It's the shape that people can keep themselves in now. Yeah. Or, or want to or whatever, you know, whether it's nutrition or, or whatever. Yeah, but we've spoken about this before. You know, if if you look at that booming world of sport in the early 80s, there were a lot of people that were advancing in years at that point. You know, big big lads as well. Just just big lads. There's a lot that AEW do now that this, speaking of Jericho, that this Raw did. Like stables, for example. There was a lot of stables on the show. And there was a lot of stables at this time. There was there was a corporate ministry. There was um, there was a union. There was a job squad. And before that, 
you guys talked about the other night. It was um, the Nation of a Nation. And when that broke up, you had Nation, you had the Los Bariquas, you had the LOD, you had DOA, DX. You, like, no one tell AEW fans because they will get so mad that WWE created a time machine and just, you know, stall off them in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so who was your MVP of the night, Matt? MVP was weird for me. Because we've not really mentioned him all night, but it was Jim Ross. And it was based on a few things. You had a very packed show tonight. A lot happened. Like, a, a lot. There was match, 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 match. But Jim Ross did not miss a beat. Nor did he miss a chance to remind you of why this match was happening. Like, here's what we did three weeks ago. Here's what we did earlier tonight. Here's what we did recently. And Jim Ross was on it all night. There's a reason Jim Ross is the best commentator of all time in, in professional wrestling. And that night was a really good demonstration of it. He did not miss a single beat. And it, he made everything make sense. Everything tied together. And you didn't miss a story beat because of Jim Ross. And it was really well put together. There was so much on this show in a two-hour show. Yeah. And the last episode reviewed Kevin Nash's high they masterfully managed three hours spoiler alert next week when we're reviewing Kevin Nash's low I don't think they're going to masterfully manage three hours but (laughs) managing two hours you know they did a great job yeah absolutely Um, Jim Ross was on my shortlist uh, for MVP of the night and the only reason I didn't give that to him was because I feel like I've given it to the commentators like more uh, too many times. So it, comment, giving commentator the MVP of the night, while it's absolutely right to do, um, I just wanted to go a different direction. But yeah, completely get that. My MVP of the night, we haven't really discussed him, but he's the star of the show. It's Stone Cold Steve Austin. So over. He, even if he's only out for a short period. That pop. They're on fire for him. Absolutely. <sighs> That pop, man, I even wrote in my uh, notes, still get goosebumps. Yeah. The second that glass shattered and you saw every single person in that arena, not only did they stand up, every arm went up, you know, both arms in the Austin kind of on the turnbuckle pose, every single one, and you could not help but get goosebumps at that point in time. My MVP tonight is actually my first one that I'm going to give a joint MVP to, and it's Briscoe and Patterson. (laughs) Because everything we've said before, just the sheer joy of that segment, they put in, particularly Briscoe, Patterson was obviously in slightly more advanced years, he was 58, Briscoe was 53. Briscoe still had a little bit of spring in his step, but they they produced absolute gold. Absolute gold. And there's not many people, there's not many people half their ages who can do what they did. Do we have to give credit to the posse for that, in a way? Nope. For the way that they sold? (laughs) Nope. No? Okay. Nope. No, it's all Briscoe and Patterson. Okay. I think, I think it's Briscoe and Patterson in spite of the posse, not because. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jesus. <laughs> so let's start a spin off podcast of review every Mean Street posse match. <laughs> oh, that'd be awful. Let's do it. <laughs> no. no, let's not. Right. <laughs> So, Matt, who would you give the René Goulet Award for Outstanding Haircut of the Night to? Test. He's luscious, he's luxurious, L'Oreal, because he's worth it. 
Tess looked gorgeous tonight. That just flowing blonde hair, stunning. Tess wins this award. I will hear no other word about it. You can why do, why do you keep rubbing it in? <laughs> no need. I don't know. <laughs> Let me have test. Uh, this, this is a man who is not used to drinking 13% beers. And not until <laughs> the end of the night, usually. Jesus. We, we got beer fest every year. And I sort of stagger my way through the night. I'll start with lower things and then build up. And I don't know why I do it. I've got like five, six, nine, ten. Fuck it. It's 11 at night. We're closing. 24%. Then don't find home. And it, I should not, I should learn from these disasters. However, <laughs> test is hair, hair, hair award. And that's the correct answer. My uh, Renee Goulet award of the night goes to uh, Sable. Wrong. Because her hair was magnificent and it her haircut struck me as a haircut that Tanahashi would be proud of. But tests was better, right? No. So, so I, I I need to impress you on this Tanahashi issue because Tanahashi has big match hair. When Tanahashi yeah. the shit about a match, his hair is done to the max. When he's phoning it in. It's a little bit, yeah. So, so yeah. So, what would you say Sable's uh, hair is in terms of Tanahashi hair? Sable's haircut is probably Tanahashi in the biggest match of his life. What against the Carter? Yeah, why not? They're really good matches, to be fair. Tanahashi and the Carter have really good matches. I mean, it's not. It's, it's, to be fair, Sable's haircut, it was, it was part of the whole attitude shift, which is the only good thing about that segment that we said before. So it's probably Tanahashi just phoning in, but even then, it's still pretty good hair. You'll turn Tanahashi. Yeah, why not? We, we need to see that now. Do we? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, Tanahashi's a star, but Sable looked like a star in this show. I mean... Awful, awful she was in, but she looked like a star. My haircut of the night is going to the big show because he had a ridiculous double braid. Did he? He did, yes. Did he? Yeah, he did. I genuinely only saw him from the front, really, and it just... I know he had the long hair, but it just, like, slicked back kind of straight into a ponytail kind of look that he used to have. I did did not realise he had the braid. The, the the big show had been to Claire's and he had bought bobbles. <laughs> I want to see him wandering to Claire's and just pull them off the rack slowly and just big show his way to the counter. <laughs> Mate, the, the best thing about that, about that is one of our very good mutual friends who I've tried to get on this podcast but he probably can't do because reasons. His mum actually used to work in, in a Claire's Yep, I know who you mean exactly. Yeah, and that just the whole idea of Big Show buying bobbles and shit off, off her just makes it infinitely funnier. Wait, he will come on this podcast? I just don't think he's got time. He's already agreed to be in a stream with me. Oh. So, you know, he'll probably do it. Only if you can mooch off my network subscription. <laughs> I'll give him mine if it means getting him on this podcast. I've already named him during this, actually. Why am I? I, I, would, I would love to see Christian do that homework. He wouldn't. That's the worst thing. He just wouldn't. 
and then wing it. You guys to bring up points. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that'd be it. Anyway, what was your sign of the night, Matt? Sign of the night. Yes, I had to uh, sort of really watch for this because I forgot about it. The big sable one. There was a big sable one, and it went across about three people. And the only reason I enjoyed it is because it it looked airbrushed, right? Yeah. Which is amazing. The amount of art that went into it until they got to the head. Like, they made this really, really good body of sable. Then they got to the head and it, like, pat, pat some fucking gurning. It was beautiful for all the wrong reasons. And I, I didn't even remember what it said. It just said sable and then some shit. But Sable's body and then Pat Patterson's head. Just imagine it. And that was why it's my sign of the night. <laughs> it was fucking amazing. Right, time for me to give a, just a wee little rundown of a couple of things that I saw uh, for sign of the night. During the uh, absolute clinic that was Jarrett versus Val Venus, uh, there was two signs. There was a, the real big show is in my pants. Um, that was somebody, I'm assuming, vastly overestimating the size of their genitals. There was a sign that said, Jeff Jarrett pisses me off, which I related to heavily. Going back, there was one of my favourites. Doesn't quite get my sign of the night, but fully put my ass in this seat. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Which was fantastic. There was a nice little nod to uh, to a previous character where it said, uh, Papa Shango rides the ho train. I saw that. I really yeah. like that. Topical to the podcast, there was uh, somebody with a sign uh, that was essentially the 1999 equivalent of saying they're cancelling their WWE Network subscription, which simply said, I am not taping Nitro. Um, oh, that's a take. That's a take. You should have <laughs> Nitro. I always yeah. take <laughs> Matt, the, uh, in answer to uh, you asking what was written on the Sable sign, it said, where in the hell is Sable? Oh, so you, you, you caught that, did you? Well, yeah, I saw the sign, and I actually I wanted to see what was written on it. One thing that I noticed was it came on the screen and then very quickly wasn't on the screen. I do believe they were asked to not put that up anymore. Like, it literally... it was Yeah, good point, because it was up early on, then it made TV, then I don't remember seeing it again. Yeah. There was, um... The face was terrible, though. I don't remember that far, that far into it, but there was, um, there was a couple of others. Somebody had a, somebody who was obviously obviously a test fan and somewhat prescient had a, a sign that said testicle, which was the uh, gimmick of tests. Yeah, it was. Yeah. There was a so again somebody over egging the pudding on the side of their own genitals that said I'm bigger than Venus, and then there was just somebody who I don't know why you put this on the sign, but it just said Issa. Give me sex later. And I, mean, I don't know. I, I think it's one of those signs we saw on Nitro that were just basically Tinder for uh, 1999. Yeah, it's just weird. And just uh, a couple more before I get to my favourite one. From the, the, These three were just in the opening segment. Somebody had a glow-in-the-dark uh, glow Undertaker symbol, which was awesome. Uh, going uh, like you say, Rob, about about being Tinder for nineteen ninety nine. Somebody just had a sign that said "Horny twenty four 
And uh, a sign that I related to just said, I farted, do you smell that? <laughs> but my favourite sign of the night came from the Test versus Bossman match. And it was a uh, it was somebody who obviously knew we'd be doing this podcast at some point, And they had a sign that just said, hi, Dan. Hello, past person. <laughs> Excellent. Time travelling. It's Tony Khan again with his bloody time machine. No, if it was Tony Khan, fuck you. Let me just say that that isn't fuck you, Tony Khan, for what he's done in AEW. That's yeah, fuck no, you, Khan, for how he's breached financial fair play at Fulham. However, also fuck you, Tony Khan, for AEW. <laughs> he's in my he's in my notes at the end on the overall score. Is oh, AEW? But it's not a bad thing. It makes sense. I promise. So, in terms of my sign of the night. I, I, there was Dan's covered most of them there. Mr. Ass Fear, Fear's toilet paper was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that one? Uh, there was there was Terrell versus Peanuts. Now I don't know if that was Tyron Terrell who had an amazing run in TNA. I, th- I thought she was fantastic. Uh, or Captain Terrell from Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, who was uh, one of the people that Khan put the. Uh, the bugs in the ears that made him tell the truth. But um, anyway, they, they were versus a peanut. So uh, it's already been mentioned. My sign of the night goes to Papa Shango rides the whole train. Because it is <laughs> very yeah. easy, isn't it? It's a deep cut. We've kind of come to the end of Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara's time in WWE. And the reason they leave is SmackDown's becoming a thing. Um, they've got an extra show to write for, but they're not going to get paid any more money. In addition, uh, Vince Russo complains to Vince McMahon that obviously he's having to spend more time away from his family, that kind of thing. Vince McMahon tells Vince Russo to get a nanny rather than see his children, which is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Vince Russo replies that the only way he'd stay is if Vince McMahon paid him a million dollars a year. just goes and signs for WCW. For three hundred and fifty thousand, Vince McMahon offers him a million, and he says, "No, family above money, really." So, uh, and like very close relationship with Ed Ferrara, so they jump ship for a third of the money. But it is what it is, and you've kind of got to make those decisions in life. So, what do we think of been through some of Ed Ferrara's time in creative? Based on, on on the one show we've seen here. I'll read what I've written, sort of a bit. It's Car Crash TV done right. A big complaint about AEW these days is they have an angle and then very quickly move on. Like, they'll have an angle in a match and then next match. An angle, next match. Angle, next match. Whereas this show sort of, and it's indicative of what WWF did these days, they they perfected that, that, that approach. They could run an angle... And then they'd remind you later in the show about why it was a thing. There was there was layers to to every angle on the show, and in this match in in, in this show in particular, Michaels named eight matches, but throughout the entire thing, Jim Ross reminded you of what these eight matches meant. So you didn't miss a beat really. The matches that weren't announced by Michaels were was Val Venus and Jeff Jarrett which had the underlying angle going in. 
So at no point did you feel like you didn't know what was happening and why it was happening? You know, all followed on from last week, or it was all explained in this show. So for me, it was crammed. The show was so crammed. And when I came out of it, my, th- my, my first thought was, is it worth the 8.1 as a rating? Was this show worth the rating it got? And it sort of split me down the middle. Because as far as the matches went, no. Realistically, no. There was a couple of good sort of matches on the card, but nothing that would make you pay for a pay-per-view. As far as star pull power goes, fucking absolutely. You had you had The Undertaker, you had Kane, you had, you had Triple H, you had DX, uh, you had The Rock, you had Austin, you had McMahon, you had Shane McMahon, you had The Corporate Ministry, you had Big Show, you had Paul Bearer. Every match, Ken Shamrock and China, main event caliber. And it all went so fast and so quick, and it did not feel like a one hour and 45 minute show that we watched. It felt like everything just was seamless. Uh, so last time I think it was harsh when I was on this show, and I think I gave five out of 10 for a show that you guys enjoyed. Uh, seven out of 10 for me, for this one. It was, it was fast paced, but it was enjoyable, and it didn't lose me for a second in this show. Fair enough. Right, on to my diatribe, <laughs> as is tradition. The matches on this show, uh, Matt alluded, alluded to just before, Jeff Jarrett Val Venus was the best match on the best pure wrestling match on the show. That was a lot of fun. Um, I've alluded to my love of Cactus Jack uh, versus Viscera Midian. The China and Shamrock match that sort of never was, was still, still yielded sort of memorable moment and drama Rodney, Rodney and Pete Gass versus the Briscoes we've talked about ad nauseum it was it was just absolute gold television without nece- without necessarily being a great match Bradshaw and Farouk was functional there was nothing awful it was a solid 5 out of 10 even Test versus Bossman I don't like on a pole matches we said before but it was still one of the better on a pole matches and then <laughs> we, we didn't mention Big Show versus Paul Bearer which was a match that happened on this show, such as it was, which was a couple of moves and then Undertaker coming down a beat down, etc., etc. And then Kane versus Billy Gunn opening was absolutely fine. So the matches overall were were actually above average for me in terms of the the episodes we've covered. A, f- a few were just sort of there. The rest served a good narrative purpose. The main event was a clusterfuck, but it was still a lot of fun. So I actually gave the matches a seven. The promos were typical of the era. They didn't put a foot wrong, really. There was, there was a you, you could nitpick a few bits. Nothing's perfect, so I gave the promos an eight out of ten. Uh, they were, like I said, they were very good. The production on the show, the commentary, apart from the women's championship match, was very good. Jr. Like Matt said, was an, an absolute highlight of the show. He kept things moving. He he. Marshalled King as as much as he was allowed to, if that makes any sense. Because I do believe they actually wanted King's commentary on the show at this point to be what it was. But the you know all the pyro and the the backstage stuff, the vignettes, uh, even even Beaver Cleavage for as shit as it was, they put extra effort to make it look how it did. So I gave the production a nine out of ten. The storylines to me just we've said before so many threads. 
pulling in from everywhere. You had the overarching story of corporate ministry versus the union. But within that were so many different strands pulling together and then bringing Cactus Jack in for a one-off and then Mankind coming out later and and things like that. And the Kane stuff, China versus Shamrock. And probably more that I'm forgetting, the, the, the amount of storylines they managed to pull together and it all still be coherent, that to me, again, is like a 9 out of 10. And the fan response, there was a, a few moments where they were a little bit lost in certain matches, but overall you still had some people. So and they were great throughout. Even even if it was just when they were trying to get the signs on TV, they were still engaged in what, in, in, in in doing something. Uh, so I gave the fan response a seven. Uh, this is my highest rating so far, and it was not planned. And it's uh, it's an eight out of ten. Fantastic. I'm giving it seven out of ten, and I guess I'm marking it down a little bit because of the overt sexism and homophobia on the show. I guess it was very much of its time. It was very difficult to watch that women's championship match, but it was a very entertaining show. And as we've said about all of these shows in WWF at this time, it felt more like a television show than just just wrestling. And yeah. it had that vengeability factor. And I think you mentioned in the DM, Matt, that you know it sort of ended very quickly. But that was kind of a ploy that they had to make people want to watch next week. Yeah, like you got Austin. It was a weird finish. Like when you go back and look at it, Austin hits a stunner. McMahon pins Shane, and Austin just pulls him off, and then stuns Shane again. And it it was one of them like, is that another sort of seed that's being planted kind of thing? Like I need to watch next week now because. Austin is just kind of fucked over Vince. Like, so is that another scene implied? Is that going to be a thing that gets picked up on next week? I, I started watching again from like 98, where I am now. It's the, the SmackDown and Raw. It's like, is that a thing that would get picked up on SmackDown? Or would I have to wait for another week? You know? Yeah, I, I think they, uh, as we discussed earlier, Vince Russo has said this week that they would purposely either end shows early or even cut cut out the show in the middle of something that was happening to make people come back next week. And it was a fantastic tour for 99. Of, of course it wouldn't work in the world of Twitter. It works know, for that, me right now. Like, it, uh, it, watching that show back, I wanted to watch for 17th of May. Yeah. And... You know, it was a fantastic device for the time, and in a world where you don't have any other ability to find out what's going on, it, it was it was perfect. Really. Like this, yeah. this show worked to such a point that I wanted to watch last week's show. You know, yeah. you saw these matches at Shane stacked against the um, against the, the Union and all these all the baby faces. I wanted to go back and watch that and watch. What the hell did Shane do that's made Sean come out this week and go, right, you know what, fuck you. Nothing you've said is is viable this week. This is what we're doing. Well, well, this is why I said it felt like a pay-per-view, because it felt like a, a lot of stuff was getting paid off. It felt like a lot of stuff was going in the favour of the faces. There was a lot of babyface wins this week. What did we get? We got Big Show. We got Kane. was no contest, right? Yeah, we, we Kane, got it. Kane won. Rock. It was no contest, Dan. Shut up. 
You got Paxton <laughs> Briscoe, Austin Rock McMahon, Cactus Jack. Yeah, there was a lot yep. of babyface wins. A lot of babyface wins. Can I pick? Is it too late for me to petition for Cactus Jack to be on as the fifth slot on our top five? How so? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Just had to check. So, just talking about giving high ratings, and you hate it when I do this. I'm currently uh, drinking Beach Baller by Gypsy Hill, which is a Cali IPA, 6%, and I'm giving that 5 out of 5 on Untapped. You keep doing this. Rob just does it to fuck with me. I'm sat here, I'm sat here trying not to piss myself, and Rob's just there merrily, uh, merrily giving a 5. Merrily giving I've, a five I've heard this miserly character portrayed of, of, of UTT Rob. And yet here he is, willy-nilly, five, five out of five and all untapped. When at least five people are listening. Uh, he's, he's, he's pandering, isn't he, Dan? He's pandering to Completely. the crowd. Completely. He's pandering his beer ratings. He, he wants those follows, those, those mutuals. Uh, are you yeah, saying... got enough already. No, no, no. no, no he, he's fucking going for PewDiePie level mutuals. Are you saying the Gypsy Hill Brewery are, uh, are listening and are going to follow me? But I'm not, if they toast my five yeah, and on untapped, I'll be very happy. If if they're following and they would be willing to sponsor UTT podcast, they a hundred percent should. In and the same way, Brewdog should five. sponsor Guru of Matitude on Twitch. You bastards! <laughs> also, fuck you. Um, so you just kind of mentioned it there, Matt. But uh, where can people find you? Where can people find me? They can find me on Twitter at Guru of Matitude. They can find me on Twitch at Guru of Matitude. They can find me on uh, Instagram at Guru of Matitude. Basically, you Google that with one of those prerequisites and you will find me. Follow me on Twitch because I constantly play Pokemon and get ridiculously angry about it. You should join me for it. It's amazing. And there's a good chance I'll drop a gift sub when I'm drunk. Yeah, there very is, yeah. This year for my Twitch has been ridiculous. Like, if I can just sort of go on a tangent for a minute, it's been phenomenal this year. The support, everyone joining in, chats, everything has been amazing. Honestly, please join me on Twitch. It's so good. It's such a good, it's a feel good vibe. Join me, please. Yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I've been surprisingly enthralled with your attempts to catch Pokemon gyms. I swear a lot. <laughs> really? Never. Uh, no, no. Where can people find you, Dan? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DanGriffin21, usually talking a load of bollocks and, and I occasionally talk, uh, tweet about wrestling as well, but usually about six weeks behind. And uh, I sometimes get a go on the uh, at UTT podcast account, but <laughs> I leave most of that to Rob. And you can find me every month on the 90s Wrestling Podcast pay-per-view reviews and that's uh, there on at 90s wrestling pod fantastic you can also find me there on that 90s wrestling podcast and you can find the show on that 90s wrestling podcast uh, we're, we're on there as well as the monthly pay-per-views or you can find us on uh, any of your favorite podcast providers on utt podcast or on booking the territory you can find me at utt rob uh, it's more about mutuals and followers so i'm more than happy to follow back so next week, we're going on to Kevin Nash's lowest rated episode of Nitro. So that'll be interesting. 
And we actually have our first guest who is also a wrestler coming on, so it'll be a unique perspective, and uh, I can't wait to see how that plays out. I know that punk-ass Shawn Michaels think he's going to come out here and make me and my partner fight each other for your amusement. No, I don't think so. Because you and I know if there was a match, who the winner would be. Right, partner? Well, who would the winner be? I think that's what they're discussing right now. You, you don't think... Hey, Farouk, last six months, every night, I've proven I can out-drink you. Don't make me beat your ass to prove I can out-fight you. Uh-oh. What'd I tell you, JR? Well, I'll be damned. Damn. It's real easy. We got a heck of a team. Don't make me ruin it by handing you your ass. Think we win, Jr. It's going to get pretty good, I think. I don't know. I think we may find out. I kind of like this. Hey, these are two big, tough son of a guns. Oh, they both have the same idea. 